You are now listening to Insanity at the Movies. Happy Halloween, dear listener. Or should I say, happy, ah, oh, scream. Man, it's a spooky time of year. (laughs) Jake and Ben had to listen to that bit of gold twice now (laughs) because we had a failed recording. And they are applauding. I had to cut it out. I did a lot of post work to take out the sound of applause because I didn't want it to be distracting to you, dear listener. But well, Ben stood up to applaud and knocked his microphone out of its stand. And yeah, we had to replace the microphone. It ended up breaking. So it was a mess. Yeah, it was a mess. It was a mess. But we're talking about a movie that's messy today that contains several messes. One very famous mess that has to be cleaned up and a movie full of insanity and. Oh my goodness, so many things to talk about. We're talking about Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho from 1960, arguably the most influential horror movie of ever, Probably, certainly the most influential horror movie since 1960. I mean, I guess you could go back and argue that Dracula with Bela Lugosi was more influential or something like that, but this one kind of changed everything, as we'll talk about, and it's a classic Hitchcock film, and... Well, there's just oodles to say, and you're going to, going to get to hear our scream of consciousness today, dear listener. So get yourself an apple out of the apple bobbin place. What else does uh, get some can get get some candy for from your bowl and settle in for a dark autumnal night of eat some candy corn like Norman Bates. Yeah, eat some candy corn like Norman Bates, like a psychopath, like a psychopath. Yeah, only only a mentally broken man. With real mommy issues, whatever, eat candy corn. That is the official Sanity at the Movies take, I think. <laughs> Ben's over there munching on his candy corn as we speak. <clears throat> yep. Yep. That's right. Also cradling, cradling a knife. Yeah. It's my favorite knife. Okay. Well, <laughs> just, just checking. Guys, let me introduce the podcast. This is Sanity at the Movies. Let me introduce the people. We've got Benjamin Skolzer. Preacher who's a bleacher of murder scenes because he has to clean them up. Mm-hmm. Can and, I be a creature of murder scenes? Oh, sure. Yeah. The sorry, the preacher who's the creature from the Black Lagoon. There, there we you go. go. And we've, I, of course, am your humble and obedient ghost on this very special Halloween episode. We've also got Jake Mentz Killer, the pastor who's a master of bleeding, as he is each and every <laughs> year. <laughs> I just bleed <laughs> when we come to. Halloween. So yeah, we're, we're talking about Psycho and Alfred Hitchcock. What is your, you guys' experience with this movie and the films of Alfred Hitchcock? And uh, what, what baggage did you bring to this film, Ben? Mm, I knew it existed. I knew it was, had a famous shower scene with stabbing like everyone does. And mm-hmm. I even knew the twist because my dad always told me about it. Oh, yeah. like every day. Every day. <laughs> Here's all, always. That's all that he talked about. Ben, I, I just want you to know, Norman and Norma, they're the same. Oh, sorry, listeners. Spoilers for a 80-year-old movie. I mean, it is one of the great twists, I guess. But mm-hmm. I don't. did you know the twist, Jake? Yeah, I knew the twist. Okay, everybody knows <clears> the twist. <throat> yeah, pretty famous twist. Uh, yeah, so continue with your baggage. Ben has, he told me beforehand, $40,000 worth of baggage he wanted to talk about. That's, that's translates bad. into about four hundred thousand dollars in today's money. It's pretty good. It's not bad. It's not bad. That's all. I mean, I never, never been eager to watch it. I guess because I don't know. There you go. It's great. Yep. All right, uh, Jake. Two horror movies. Your baggage. I think it's the same baggage everybody has with this movie who hasn't seen it, which is 
know about the shower scene, you've seen... You've probably seen the shower you've scene. You've seen the, the shower scene. It's used in clips all the time. Just any kind of montage of horror movies or october commercials is going to have... You know, you're gonna, you just, it's inescapable, unavoidable. And then the music as well. Mm-hmm. And then the references to it all over the culture. So mm-hmm. there's, there's that. And the name Norman Bates and Bates Motel and... You know, some of the iconography, the, the image of the Bates Motel, that that sort of thing. Or rather the house. You see the house, you don't see the hotel. Yeah, the, the house up on the hill. Mm-hmm. Nondescript. The, the that house on the hill. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, had, I had never actually watched it. And so that was fun. I've seen, I think, my fair share of Hitchcock, but never this one. Yeah, this is probably, um, I mean, let's see. I mean, if you just list the Hitchcock classics, I bet you you've seen them, like Vertigo and The yeah. Birds. And I have not seen The Birds. Oh, okay. Well. But I've seen, I don't know, North by Northwest, Vertigo. I think both versions of The Man Who Knew Too Much. I, I don't know. I Rear, Rear Window, just... I, I There's so many Hitchcock films. I just pulled up a list and a lot of them, 39 Steps, even. Yeah, yeah. Sure. There's just very few that... Well... I mean, there's so many it, that there's so many. There's a whole lot that I haven't seen, but I can just scan and oh yeah, I saw that one. Oh yeah, I saw that one. Oh, I saw that one. To catch a thief. It just doesn't matter. But yeah, this I would say I guess the two big back to back more horror films instead of are the two that I haven't seen or hadn't seen before now. Psycho and the birds. Yeah. I, I birds really nihilistic. <laughs> Arguably kind of scarier in its way than psycho well i don't know mm. but it depends on what what gets you i i wouldn't say so i saw the birds a long time ago i no. think as a teenager as a teenager maybe yeah that explains why every time a, a bird flies by you like dive under the nearest mm-hmm. car yeah. or, but other than that much, it didn't have much of an, didn't effect much of an effect. No. well it's got one gore moment that is more intense with or the guy's eyes are pecked out or mm-hmm. something that that's yeah. always really stuck with me really horrified me as a kid yeah, that's so pretty horrifying. When I when I say it's more horrifying within Psycho, I guess I just mean it has that one little moment in it that's stuck with me and mm-hmm. haunted my nightmares more than anything in Psycho. Would you consider yourself to be a fan of the old master of suspense, Jake? Yeah, I think he's a lot of fun. I think his movies are a lot of fun. And they're fun both from the standpoint of they hold up and also from just sort of like a craft standpoint. Like, you want somebody who's a master of structure and setup and payoff. Mm-hmm. Like you, you still can't do much better than Hitchcock. It's by a lot of standards, maybe naked or or relatively obvious or bare bones. But I think that's part of the fun, actually. Is yeah, really. You can actually sports. catch him doing something. So if you're a cinephile, especially, you're like, oh, I see what he's doing here, and you can kind of enjoy it. Yeah, and you can. You you can always be in a room with people who are just carried along and don't see what he's doing, and it's fun to get that little bit of. It's like he gifts you a, a sense of superiority in that sense. And that's yeah. kind of cool. Without being like, I have to hide my, everything I'm doing from absolutely everybody and be you know have my head up my own butt. No, Hitchcock was famous for, and then this movie has a moment that a lot of people hate, which is the psychiatrist moment that uh, plays into this. He was famous for wanting to not leave one audience member behind like everything has to be explained every i has to be crossed every t has to be dotted strike (laughs) strike that and reverse it Mm -hmm. like everything needs to make sense we need to know what happened to the money and where it went even though the money ultimately doesn't matter like i don't we don't want any audience member to be ahead of the movie but we also don't want any audience member to be behind the movie 
So he just lays out everything in a in a linear way that people can follow while, while doing the most egregious cheats. Like in this movie, you have egregious, you know, I mean, I don't know if you guys figured this out, but by the way, folks, full spoilers for Psycho, if you haven't seen it, it wasn't Anthony Perkins playing mother in, in any of those. Anytime, anytime you see mother, it's just a lady, which is about as egregious. That's a cheat. Which is a cheat, a big in, cheat. In, until the very end. Until the very end when he mm-hmm. comes out. And is revealed, but like the shower scene, like Anthony Perkins had nothing to do with the shooting of the shower scene or or with the death of Detective Ab- Arbogast or mm-hmm. anything like that. But that's not a plot cheat. That's just a, I don't know what kind of cheat you'd call that, but. It's an effects cheat. Yeah, it's an mm-hmm. effects cheat. Which, <clears throat> I mean, today they would, they would have the dude, but with makeup and CGI. Yeah. And there's a lot more tools in the toolbox to mask that. Yeah, they and did some interesting. Would have had to work with the other thing they actually did is there's three different actors that play mother that play the voice of mother, and he's actually stitching words together. Like it's a very modern thing you could do. Huh. Like when whenever mother speaks, you're hearing more than one person. So you're hearing a male, a, a friend of Anthony Perkins, who was famous for doing an old lady impression that they got to come in, who could kind of have the timber of a man speaking as a woman. But then you've also got a raspy old woman, and wow. I think another woman doing it and he's choosing little phrases and stitching them together to create the voice of mother. So good old mother. The boy's best friend is his mother. This movie has many good life lessons. We all go a little mad sometimes. Mm -hmm. Ben, what's your relationship with the master of suspense? Oh, I've seen a lot of Hitchcock, but let's see. I haven't seen Vertigo. So really? Nope. Still have not, but seen the man who knew too much, the Jimmy Stewart version, seen the 39 steps scene. Is it saboteur or sabotage? I, I don't remember. Sabo- one, saboteur, there, well, there, yeah. there's both. <laughs> yeah, and I don't remember which one it is. I've seen. It's an older, like it's it's a black and white. So saboteur is forty two. I, I think it was saboteur. Sabotage was thirty six. It looks. Oh like. man, I yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I've I've tried to f- remember that before. That was a fun movie. Whatever it was. I don't think I've seen that one. Mm-hmm. Is the Statue of Liberty in the one that you remember? No. Oh, I thought that one was... So that's Sabotage. That's okay. Okay, yep. Sabotage. Seen Sabotage. And, Which one uh, is it where she's married to Cary Grant and he may or may not be uh, a bad um, dude? Oh, I would have remembered it if you... Suspicion. Yeah, I've seen Suspicion. I've seen Notorious. I've seen that other one where Gregory Peck is a crazy guy, except uh, not. Yeah, that I one don't, stinks. That one stinks. <laughs> a lot of people like that one. I don't know that I like... No, Spellbound? That I, I don't think I like Suspicion either. Spellbound. Well, some of the old ones like Notorious are just so hard-edged in their characterizations. Like the heroes are just not likable. But Notorious is really cool. It's a real, I don't know, eye-opening, enlightening, interesting thing to do to watch The Man Who Knew Too Much back-to-back. Yeah, I've never seen the Peter Lorre version. I've only seen the Jimmy Stewart version. Yeah, it's, I mean, you just get this sense like, you know, he hit the fifties or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, okay, well I've spent the last 30 years learning how to do this. So it's time to actually do it. Yeah. And, huh. and, and it's not like the man who knew too much, the 34 man who knew too much or 39 steps are bad movies. It's just that he felt, it, it just seems like he felt like he hit a stride. Mm. And yeah, the fifties is definitely his golden period where he has all the money and all the power and he can do exactly what he wants and no one's stopping him. And the, the sensors are relaxed wants, enough that he, he can, can kind of yeah. do. And so it's just like, I mean, okay, foreign correspondence, 1940. So is it, that's a pretty 
well-respected classic. But but yeah, you, you see the difference. You see all the different little things that he does in those two movies. And it's like, all right, he he really felt like he could. About once you hit the 50s or mid-50s, early mid-50s, he's just doing what he wants to do now. Yeah. And, yeah. and has control over what, like has mastery of his, can achieve what what he set, sets out to do much more readily. Yeah. I mean, Hitchcock is the great exemplar of auteur theory, the idea that the director is the author and that we are watching one man's ideas and one man's obsessions up there on screen, as opposed to the more mundane idea that a bunch of people get together and make a movie. But when you're watching a Hitchcock movie, especially a later period at Hitchcock, you're seeing the things that scare him, the things that he thinks are interesting, the things that he thinks are funny, the story that he wants to tell. I mean, in Psycho, Hitchcock hated policemen. So you have this scene that, yes, it plays to Marion's paranoia and all this stuff, but I don't think it was like that in the screenplay. I think Hitchcock was like, no, we got to dehumanize this policeman character a little bit because he was scared to death of policemen. He never drove, a, he never in his life drove, learned to drive a car because he was afraid of being pulled over. So there's just, really? there's just things like that that go, you can track across Hitchcock's canon of work and you can see you can you can tell which actors he likes in this movie you can you can tell that he had a good relationship with janet lee and with anthony perkins you can tell that he didn't care at all about the the lady that plays lila crane who he was mad at (laughs) during the shooting actually and, and doing everything to make her part dowdy and stupid and unlikable even though it's almost works against the movie I would say, although maybe you could argue for it. Maybe you guys would want to argue for it. I don't know. But but Sam and Lila are such a are such zeros in the second half mm-hmm. of this movie that it's, it's striking after all the attention lavished on Marion. In any mm-hmm. case, Hitchcock is just he's a fun director to watch because he's got identifiable themes that you see across his body of work. He's got and there's always a bad mother. I mean, I don't know how many bad mothers have shown up. Claude Rains has an evil Nazi mother in uh, Notorious. The mom in Strangers on the, I think in Strangers on the Train, where the two guys trade murders. One of them wants his mom murdered because she's oppressive. There's just, I don't know what Hitchcock's relationship with his mother was like. I don't think it was bad in any way that's come down to us, but man, he had some kind of a something Hmm. about mothers. Anyway, I like Hitchcock, as you can probably tell. I mean, he's, I don't know if he's like my favorite or anything. He's fun. Like, he, He's fun to watch, like exactly what Jake said. Like he, he does things that you can watch and appreciate on a very obvious and visceral level. And he's also got fun suspense stories. Like he's the kind of old classic movie that's very easy to talk, talk your wife into watching. Yeah. Or <clears throat> well, he's gonna cast you know Jimmy Stewart, or he's gonna cast Cary Grant. And yeah, it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be cool. It's going to be an enjoyable classic movie experience just on, on a superficial level. There'll be some there, glamour. There are multiple levels that you can enjoy it on. Right, yeah. I mean, before and Psycho doesn't necessarily fit all of this, but usually there'll be glamour and there'll be some sex appeal and there will be some stars of the period that we like. And it's just everything that you watch an old Hollywood movie for on a superficial level. Yeah. Oh, I like Jimmy Stewart because I like It's a Wonderful Life, and but I've never really seen him in anything else right oh he's rear window that let's do that right and that movie is supposed to be like all he's a voyeur watching people in his crappy apartment and all this stuff but but then like half of it's like him having like banter with grace kelly and she's like the height of 
right. coiffed, perfected elegance. So and, it's like, oh, I get to experience Jimmy Stewart outside of It's a Wonderful Life and <laughs> Grace Kelly. Yeah. I know that name. Like, and, and yeah, she's got all of the Grace Kelly that what's her face in Mad Men was trying to. Yeah, I mean, Grace Kelly was the June. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, Don Dra- Mrs. Draper. Yeah, whatever that actress's name is, January Jones. January Jones. Um, yeah. Yes. So we're all Hitchcock fans, I guess. Yeah, to one degree or another. Yeah, you always feel like he's playing games with you as a viewer in terms of like the abstract themes are not so abstract. Yeah. Have like, you seen any like, of his silent films? Like the sex that he actually cares about. I mean, he's one of those directors that that made that transition. Goes all the way back. Goes back to silent film, right? He's got a whole silent oeuvre. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is him finding his feet. So there's stuff that's interesting historically, but not necessarily all that much fun to watch. I've seen some of his very early talkies. Like, I think I've seen The Lodger, but most people agree he doesn't really hit his stride. The Lodger is silent. Is it like, okay, well, maybe I've seen at least part of that. I I just have it pulled up in front of me. That's 1927. Okay, okay, yeah. Most people would say he hits his stride with, oh, what's the one where the lady, it's not Strangers on a Train, but it's also a train. The Lady Vanishes. The Lady Vanishes. Which I've never seen. Yeah, and then around that time, he does a bunch of British classics like 39 Steps, the original man who knows knew too much. And then he goes to America. He has these different periods. He goes to America and he does Rebecca and Spellbound, which are their own glamorous, big budget Hollywood kind of super productions of the time which have their problems, and Notorious is another one of those, which have their problems because Hitchcock didn't have full creative control. He was always fighting with David Selznick, the producer, so it's kind of not exactly his vision. But a lot of people would say that's some of Hitchcock's best stuff. And then you've got his 1950s golden period when he was shooting these lavish Technicolor things and finally culminates with Psycho as kind of the end of that period. And then I think, although The Birds was successful and everybody still loves The Birds, the culture kind of got ahead of Hitchcock, especially, I mean, it's it's his own fault for making Psycho. Once you've opened up that Pandora's box, then it's like, well, okay, everybody can make make things that are more bloody, that are more deviant. And it's like Hitchcock was kind of old news after that. He couldn't couldn't keep up with Hmm. once he started having the actual horror movies of the 70s and stuff like that. And his last couple movies, like Frenzy, are pretty tawdry in their attempt to Kind of disappointingly tawdry. Not that the tawdry this is always there with Hitchcock, but you, I think we all love the the elegance of the older movies where the tawdryness has to be kind of hmm. subtext one way or another. I've seen Torn Curtain, which is an older movie after The Birds of 66 with yeah, uh, Steve McQueen. I think I've seen that one. It's, it's an okay, like it's basically just works as a kind of action adventure huh. in its way. I mean, still you got Hitchcock, the Hitchcock of it all, but it's pretty light yeah his his usual flavor is not heavily sprinkled on the movie it's just like an espionage thriller with steve mcqueen it has it has a famous fight scene where steve mcqueen and this other lady in the wherever he is forced this assassin's head into a stove oh no until he dies that'll that'll get somebody they got him okay good good um, he deserved it i guess yep all right well so that's there's your hitchcock there's your hitchcock well, let me... Oh, take, I said Steve McQueen. I'm sorry. Paul Newman. Paul Newman. Okay, yeah. Paul Newman. And yeah. then there's one with Con- young Connery from around that time. I forget what it's called. Marnie, I think. Marnie has yeah. young Connery. Never saw it. Yeah. Uh, those are inter- those post kind of Psycho and the Birds movies are, are interesting. Frenzy is the one I think of that's just like, oh no, 
Hitchcock's trying to be relevant in a world that has nudity and violence and stuff. And this just feels really dark and ugly. Hmm. I mean, there's still some elegance to Psycho. I think Psycho and the birds are the last of the, like, we still have to have some elegance to this. Hmm. I don't know. Let me take us back and give us a little context. So I hate true crime podcasts. I'm, I'm not a fan of the, the whole genre of true crime docudrama. We take a real life story of someone's miserable <laughs> pain and turn it into entertainment. Not a huge fan of. I suppose there are things that transcend the genre like Truman Capote's and Cold Blood or any no- number of things you could name. But... I think basically when you see at the supermarket all these books about this this stupid Jeffrey Dahmer show that Netflix just came out with. like Didn't you read a whole book on the Manson family? Yeah, I've read both classic Manson books. I've read Helter Skelter. Maybe I wouldn't read it now. I mean, that was 20 years ago probably that I read that book. And then I read a different book that is actually trying to dispute that book that you can listen to us talk about on some episode of Sound of Sanity where we talked about where the guy's drawing connections between the Manson family and the CIA. And it's not, it, it does cover the Tate Bianca, La Bianca murders, but it's not about them. It's just about the world that they happened in. But anyway, I don't like true crime. That's all of which to say, uh, this is, this is the closest we'll ever become a true crime podcast because you had to talk a little bit about the inspiration for psycho Ed Gein, the Plainfield butcher. But actually, let me take a step back before we even get to that and talk about another serial killer, H.H. Holmes, the first documented serial killer in the United States of America. 1888, you had Jack the Ripper over in England. Certainly not the first person to go and kill a bunch of people for pleasure, but the first person to sort of capture the public imagination in the age of the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And H.H. H. Holmes was the first guy like that in, the, in America, in the United States of America. And in 1894, thereabouts, in the Chicagoland area, H.H. H. Holmes was concocting his latest dastardly scheme. And it went a little something like this. He had a buddy, a carpenter friend named Benjamin Pitazel. And he said, hey, Ben, you know what? Why don't we fake your death? And Benjamin Pitazel was like, okay, yeah, we can fake my death. How are we going to do that? Well, we're going to set you up as a scientist. This is a really great plan. We're going to set you up as a scientist, and then we're going to have your lab explode. And Benjamin Pitazel's like, okay, cool. So uh, equals profit how? And H.H. Holmes is like, it's an insurance scam, my old friend. We're going to find a cadaver. Don't worry. I'll find the cadaver. Don't worry about it. And We will burn it beyond recognition in the explosion of your laboratory, and we will claim that it is you, and we'll make lots of money from the insurance company. And Pitazol, who had gone in on dastardly schemes with the vile H.H. Holmes before, agreed to the plan. Unfortunately, H.H. Holmes had trouble finding a cadaver, and so he decided, well... There's one cadaver that I have pretty readily available. I mean, I'm going to have to make it into a cadaver, but there's one pre-cadaver that I have available. It's Benjamin Pitazel, my, my friend who I came up with this scheme. Actually, if we're going to present somebody who's supposed to be his corpse, why not just present his corpse? So he burned and chloroformed his friend, quote-unquote, Pitazel, 
and presented the body to the police, to the insurance company, and made a lot of money. Now, that is not the interesting part of the story. That is not the shocking, sad, horrifying part of the story. Here's the really spooky, scary, horrifying part of the story, what H.H. Holmes did next. H.H. Holmes then went to Mrs. Pitazol. Benjamin Pitazol's wife, and he said, hey, I'm going on a trip, and I wonder if I could take your daughters, Alice, Nellie, and Howard, your little baby son, three of your children, to accompany me. And Mrs. Pitazol, here's, here's the crazy part. Mrs. Pitazol said, sure, that sounds great. She obviously did not realize that H.H. H. Holmes was the murderer of her husband, but she was just like, yeah, sure, you can take my daughters and go on a trip around the country with them. And so... H.H. Holmes left with the children, and that was the last that Mrs. Pittisle ever saw of those children. We don't have to talk about that, but here's the point. Eric Larson wrote a great book called Devil in the White City, which talks about the Chicago World's Fair of that time and the serial killer H.H. Holmes applying his bloody trade and kind of puts them together in a really interesting way. And, and, And the case that he makes is that people back then... Like, like I said, it's not that there weren't serial murderers. It's not that there weren't killers. It's not that nobody had ever heard or conceived of the idea of someone who just liked killing people. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't really a category that people thought in. It wasn't really a category that people thought in. Just in the same way that in recent decades, a lot of literature and publicity has surrounded sexual abuse. And so we all think in categories of sexual abuser child molester, stranger danger. These are all, it's not that people didn't realize strangers could be dangerous before that, but they they just didn't have an easy handle for it the the way that we have now. Mm -hmm. I am so trained by uh, the way that people talk about these things that I think in the category of, well, that person might be a predator against my child. That person might be a predator against my child. Here's the steps that I take to make sure that there's no predator against my child. But it's not always been that way. People haven't always had those easy handles. And serial killer, by and large, was not a handle that people had. And so the case that Eric Larson makes in his book about H.H. Holmes is that we can go a little bit easy on Mrs. Pitasil. You know, it's easy to look down on her when she like let her daughters go up with the go away with this diabolical murderer who had killed her husband. In fact, and even if she didn't know he killed her husband, why let your daughters go with somebody? It's like, well, the thing is. People didn't have categories for the kind of evil that A.J. Holmes did in, in their heads. Not in the same way that we do today. And so why do we have those categories? Well, some of it is because of Jack the Ripper. Some of it is because of H.H. Holmes. But the real golden age of serial killers begins with the inspiration behind Psycho, behind the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, behind all the stories, all the slasher movies. And that gentleman's name is Ed Gein. So mm-hmm. flash forward to 1957. Wisconsin farmer Ed Gein is ar- arrested on suspicion of the murder of one Bernice Warden. His farmhouse is duly checked and the remains of approximately 15 women are found in various small pieces. Ed Gein, interesting guy. He was dominated by his mother, Augusta, who was some kind of nutty, faux, Lutheran, religious lady. She'd read him these really 
selective <laughs> verses from Revelation and from the Old Testament, in God's wrath and sin and depravity. She taught him that women are all just promiscuous whores. The only person that you can really trust is your mother. And he lived on a farm, kind of isolated from the rest of town, the town of Plainfield, with her, with her father, or with his father and with his brother, until both of his father, both his father and his brother died. And then Ed is just left alone, caring for his awful, miserable, mean shrew of a mother. And she has a stroke and shows she's just like this miserable creature that he has to take care of this ugly thing. And she has been ugly to him for his entire life. But finally, she dies and Ed is left alone. And he does handyman jobs. He babysits around the town. People know him. People like him. They think he's a little odd. They think he has kind of a strange sense of humor. But they never suspect what he's actually up to. November 16th, 1957, Bernice Warden disappears from the store that she owns. And the last person to be seen at that store is Ed Gein. So the police go ahead and arrest him. Mm -hmm. And they check his farm, like I said at the beginning of this beautiful, beautiful story. So uh, they find her body and they go ahead and they do a search of the house. They found whole human bones, different items, a waste ba basket made out of human remains, chairs, leggings, mask, a belt, a lampshade. And so he killed two women, including Bernice Warden, the owner of the store. But he also dug up a lot of graves and he might have been responsible for more murders. Who knows? Sad, sordid, miserable story of Ed Gein. He spent the rest of his life in a hospital for the mentally insane. And he is really the first American serial killer of the modern era. Save Jack the Ripper in London over in 1888, who captures the public imagination and continues to capture it to this day. Then you have H.H. Holmes, who's kind of the first American guy to have that kind of wonderful legacy. And then you have Ed Gein in 1957, who... The newspapers at the time can't report half of what he's done and what he's responsible for because people just <laughs> wouldn't have been able to handle it. They didn't, like I said, people didn't have this, mm -hmm. the categories for this. I mean, the, 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 the phrase serial killer first becomes popular in 1981. I, I'm about as old as the phrase serial killer. It's not an old category. But Ed Gein is 1957. And, and then... Serial killing begins to become a very popular sport in the 1970s, uh, 1970s, 1980s, are considered the golden age of a serial killer. I did not name them this. This is what they're called by uh, serial killer aficionados. And people have different reasons for that. There's the sexual revolution in the 1960s. Of course, there's urbanization, more people packed together, living in closed spaces. There's a lot of things that people talk about. And I don't know that we need to litigate that today. But the point is, a lot of what you think of when you think of a serial killer, a lot of the iconography that's kind of come down to us and that has been repeated ad nauseum in TV shows and movies and Thomas Harris with the Hannibal Lecter stuff was kind of playing on the same stuff, comes to us from Ed Gein. He's the seemingly normal dude that has a devil inside him, a monster lurking beneath a, a placid exterior. He's the guy that's just across from the white picket fence, acting normal. He's your neighbor. He's your friend. 
he's somebody that you see every day, but he's harboring a dark secret. And when they pry it open, pry it loose, when they go into his domain, it is a hellscape of debauchery and ruination and violation. And he, especially through pop culture, through movies like Psycho, I I think he really helped shift the culture away from any kind of fascination with the supernatural in terms of what we're scared of. What scares us today are real life horrors. What scares us are school shooters and serial killers and the kind of terrible things that happen in a concrete material world. Of course, there's still many popular ghost movies and stuff like that. But by and large, as a culture, I wouldn't say we're really super scared of the supernatural. What we are scared of is the horrible things that can happen inside the seemingly normal human mind and the horrible things that human beings can do to each other. We're not scared of Dracula. We're not scared of Gothic castles. We're not scared of supernatural evil. We are scared of what our neighbor is capable of. We are scared of what the guy that we wave to every day as he goes to work across the street is capable of. We're scared maybe of what we're capable of. And that's the legacy of Ed Gein. That's the legacy of Psycho. And just living not that many miles away from Edward Gein was a guy named Robert Block who wrote the novel Psycho. He was a protege of H.P. Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft was the first person to encourage Block. Like, hey, you've got something. And so a lot of his early stories are like about cosmic horror and Cthulhu kind of stuff. He would submit stories and novels and things to the little things like places like Weird Tales, those kinds of things. And post-World War II, Robert Block had a realization, which is that, wow, horror really isn't like what lurks in the shadows of castles. It's what lurks in the shadows of our mind. And so he wrote the novel of Psycho, more or less explicitly based on this real-life murder story of Ed Gein. Norman in the book, uh, much more like Ed Gein. He's fat. He's slobby. He's unkempt. He's a drunk. The whole scene where he's peeping through the hole is much more icky. Not Not that it's not terribly icky in the movie, but it's just a little different when it's sweet, childish, handsome. Anthony Perkins. But the thing that absolutely fascinated Robert Block about the whole Ed Gein case and the thing that he understood would be fascinating to all of us was the idea that this guy could just be your neighbor. He could be your friend. He could be somebody across the white picket fence from you who was just somebody that you knew that this kind of evil could lurk hidden or maybe not so hidden in, in regular society. People, people always kind of think or, or I've heard people criticize Psycho because how could Norman get away with all this in a little hotel that's like right out off the stupid small town. Like, why didn't people figure it out? Like mother's sitting there propped in the window. But I think that reads perfectly on a, on a sort of creepy psychological level. We all understand that people get away with things all the time and it's right under the nose of everyone. And people just, they don't want to see, they don't want to see. So, so these things happen. So Robert Block's big quote was, here was a town where a person sneezed on one side of the town and on the, on the other side of the town, someone said, good gesundheit. And yet evil flourished there. And he thought he found that really fascinating and wanted to capture that. Robert Block, just to finish up his story, he wrote for Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He wrote for Thriller. He wrote for Star Trek. He's kind of responsible. One of the workmen-like people that did a lot of the pop culture that we know from the mid-century, mid-20th century. 
he's very dad jokey. I've read, I've not read the novel Psycho, but I've read his short stories and they're like full of puns. The famous scene where Marion is killed in the novel says something like, a knife came through the shower curtain and cut off her scream. And then it cut off her head. There's, a, you know, he's like a Mr. Dark pun dude. So he's, I don't find him very fun to read for that reason. But that's Ed Gein. That's, that's Robert Block. Let's talk about Alfred Hitchcock. He's the son of a grocer in London. He was, his father said, his mother, father, and mother said he was a lamb without a spot. He really didn't have any dark past, at least that we know of. The most famous formative story, the anecdote that Hitchcock would always tell over and over again, was that one day he did something bad. Hitchcock didn't even remember what, but his dad took him to jail and, or sent him to jail with a note. And he handed the note to a constable and the note said, put Alfred in jail so he can see what it's like, you know, just as a little act of discipline from his dad. So the policeman marched him to the cell. The policeman put him into the cell. And the policeman said, this is what we do to naughty boys. I don't know if he talked like that, but that's what he said. This is what we do to naughty boys. Turn the key. Poor little Alfred had to sit in there for a few minutes. And that was a formative experience. <laughs> you don't see. And you can see it reflected in this movie in the famous and quite creepy and, and somewhat superfluous to anything else cop scene where the cop is just so scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he's a very mechanical-minded guy. He studies mechanics, electricity, acoustics, and, and navigation in London. And then he's looking for a job, trying to figure out what he's going to do. And famous pay players, Lasky, the production arm of Paramount Pictures in London, is, is, is opening a studio. And Alfred Hitchcock, because he's just a good mechanical draftsman type dude, gets a job drawing subtitles for silent films that were be, being made in the early 20th century there. And that's where he met his wife, Alma, who was an editor. And he worked his way up, I dare say, to become a director in the British film industry. And then the rest is history. We've already talked about the trajectory of his career. Like he, he took off. He, he was good at branding. And some of the reason that like your mom knows who Hitchcock is, is, because, is, is not because he's so darn great that she knows who he is. It's because he had a TV show and he appeared on the TV show. And he had that famous silhouette. And he put his name all over magazines. I mean, you guys have probably seen books that are like, Alfred mm -hmm. Hitchcock presents the top. Yeah, I have a Alfred Hitchcock presents stories to keep awake by or something like right. that. Right. And Alfred Hitchcock can't present nothing about that. Like, just the, his hey, name, his brand. Can his we write you a check and put your name on this? There was Alfred Hitchcock magazine. There was a TV show. He was just a really canny self-promoter. I mean, he was like the first of this breed of like Chris Pratt or The Rock or Tom Cruise. Or Walt or Disney. Walt, yeah, well, Walt Disney mm -hmm. is maybe the ultimate. Yeah, Walt, Walt Disney knew how to brand himself to children. But Alfred Hitchcock branded himself as like, he's the suspense guy. It, but it also helps that he was, he was really, 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 really very good at what he did. He was a fastidious solver of problems. He did not care about people. He did not care about his actors. He was accused of saying that, a that actors were like cattle. And he said in a famous interview, I never said that actors were cattle. I said they should be treated like cattle. Didn't get along with actors because his idea was, I've already storyboarded this thing. You figure out the motivation. I'm just going to come up with a place for you to stand. You've got to hit that mark. You've got to stand there. You figure out how to make it plausible that you'd stand there. I'm doing the camera, you're doing the acting stuff. And so people like Janet Lee 
can do really well in that. Like she brings a lot of pathos to Marion. People like Anthony Perkins brings a lot to Norman Bates. And you have to imagine Hitchcock had something to do with that. Like I'm sure the legends mm-hmm. aren't, enti- you know, he didn't, he did not care. You can't not care and get these kinds of results. But the story is he really, Anthony Perkins came up with the candy corn thing. Hey, what if Norman chews candy corn when he's nervous? And Hitchcock's like, okay, whatever you want to do. Is he going to be chewing that candy corn in the place, in the shot that I designed? You'll be standing in the right place. And it's like, okay. He famously said, once the screenplay is finished, I'd just as soon not make the film at all. All the fun is over. I have a strongly visual mind. I visualize a picture right down to the final cuts. I write all this out in the greatest detail in the script, and then I don't look at the script when I'm shooting. I know it by heart, just as an orchestra conductor needs not look at the score. It's melancholy to shoot a picture. When you finish the script, the film is perfect, but in shooting it, you lose perhaps 40% of your original conception. So that's Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, that's the legend. That's what he wanted you people to think. You get a lot of different reports from his actors. Some people really liked him. He was the kind of guy, I think, if his light was shining on you, you really liked him. And then once he decided he didn't like you, you were toast. Uh, He really liked Janet Leigh in this movie, and he really did not like Vera Mills. He was grooming, and I do mean grooming, Vera Mills for the part in Vertigo. She was his star. He was paying for her to be have these glamour photographs, and he was making her into his next Ice Queen Hitchcock leading lady. And then she got pregnant with her third child and was unable to do vertigo and Hitchcock was furious. And so he still owned her contract and he puts her in psycho and he gives her the least glamorous, most dowdy kind of like nothing part as the, I think fairly unlikable Lila crane. And apparently there was more between Lila and Sam and like more, more stuff for them to do, but it just all got cut out because, and she's wearing a stupid wig and, like, it's just like, you can tell he likes the people. Hitchcock likes working with the people in the first half of this movie. And he really doesn't like working with the people in the second half of this movie. He didn't like Vera Mills who plays Lila. He didn't like the stiff as a board guy that plays Sam. I think he likes Detective Arbogast. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> which I, I thought he liked the sheriff and his wife. Yeah, I think he likes, he likes those, those people as characters. I, I, think, I think basically he just doesn't like the two leads because the screenwriter talks about like i tried to give them stuff like this still needs to be a story and hitchcock's like no the story it's norman's story it doesn't matter let's just get let's just hit the beats as quickly as possible and make the set pieces cool and i don't know we could talk about whether we think that was a good idea or not maybe maybe that is the way to do it but things that make hitchcock great things that he's famous for the, the two things that were big when he was getting into silent film that he was influenced by were german expressionism which is, you know, everybody knows German expressionism. It's Nosferatu. It's Metropolis. It's these bigger-than-life things where you distort reality in order to express an emotional state. Like, this person's sad, so the whole set is going to be looming over them in a gothic way to show the despair of their soul. or It's that kind of thing. It's a high art movement in Germany, but it was really influential in the 20s and early teens when Hitchcock was coming up. And then Soviet montage theory. Eisenstein and those kinds of things where, where you, you, it's not about the individual frame of film or the individual set camera setup. It's about putting them all together. The famous Koloshov experiment where you take the same, we've talked about it before, where you take the same image of a dude just looking into the camera and then you cut it together with a little girl picking flowers and it looks like he's really affectionate and you cut it together with 
an image of a dead cat or something. And it looks like he's disgusted. It's, it's like we're achieving meaning through montage. So Hitchcock's very ahead of his time in adopting both those things. Like we're going to distort reality to sell an emotional idea, which you might not catch him. You might not think of Psycho as being that way, but the cop is a good example. Like, yep. who is this cop? <laughs> he's, 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 he's like Terminator or something. Like it's completely, yeah. it's completely in Marion's head who this cop is. That's right. He does not exist as an actual human that you or I would meet even in the world of the movie. Yeah, we, the only way he makes sense is as from her perspective, mm-hmm. which is distorted. Right. Right. Which you can catch. What's interesting is that a few times you were like, wait a minute, this cop's just a regular guy. Like, he's actually trustworthy. Yeah. Because the screenplay doesn't, I don't know. Yeah, he's not actually doing anything wrong, but it's no. all it all has such sinister well, you've foreboding. Got, you, yeah, you've, you've got the music, you've got her fear, you've got his creepy sunglasses. Right. And the shot takes off. Uh, from, shot from under loom, with him looming into the camera, you mm-hmm. know, as if from Like her, a bug or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, it's really striking. And then, of course, the famous example of Soviet montage theory of putting images together to achieve an effect would be the shower Shower scene. scene. Yeah, which famously Hitchcock always said, never showed nudity and never showed a knife going in. Both things are false, but Hitchcock loved the idea that you didn't actually see anything. And it's basically true. Like, you don't see much. There might be one three-second shot of a knife that's actually going into something. but. Basically, you're just cutting together a bunch of shots of a knife being swung and her hands and her screaming face and the water and all this stuff. And it creates an effect that even these these many years later, I think is pretty powerful and mm-hmm. horrible. Other things to look for in Hitchcock. He is all about gaze. He is all about a shot of human face and then point of view of what that person is looking at. Which G-A-Z-E. Gaze, yes, G-A-Z-E. He's also maybe a little about gaze, G-A-Y-S. But human gaze, point of view, which Spielberg famously has co-opted and made his thing. Let's have the slow zoom in on Richard Dreyfus, and then we'll see the magical alien spacecraft, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, which not every filmmaker does. You can watch plenty of movies where the camera exists outside the point of view of the characters. Good movies. But Hitchcock and, and, and Spielberg are all about get, giving you that subjective lens into... What's going on? He is all about the compression and elongation of time. So if something suspenseful is about to happen, we stretch it out more than it really would be. We, we can basically stop time. We're, we're not about, again, being literal about how long something would take. If Detective Arbogast needs to stumble down those stairs really slowly so that we can get the effect of a man like, we'll do that. And then Mother will be right there. Somehow she she's right there to stab him. Like, we're, we're cheating. We're, you don't catch it. You wouldn't say the movie's cheating, but he's doing all kinds of things cinematically to achieve the effect that he wants without much thought of what would literally be true in that mm-hmm. scene. Hitchcock was a proponent, finally, of, of, pure, of what he called pure cinema. He wasn't interested, ultimately, in dialogue. He wasn't interested in character. He was just interested in, in what he could do with a camera and with sounds to, to move you. You know, it's not about having a character sum up the tragedy of Marion Crane's life being cut short. It's about cutting from her eye to a drain <laughs> as, mm-hmm. as her life goes down the drain. Like it, it's about creating an effect that you can't put into words. Like you, you, you can't conjure up 
the the sad wasted life of Marion Crane with words, but you feel it as it as the breath goes out of her and as the eyeballs cut with the drain and the water is still going and it's right there, man. Life goes on, but it's all washing down the drain before you know it, man. That kind of those are the kinds of effects Hitchcock was after. We'll talk about two more people. Bernard Herrmann is the great composer of this movie. Pretty famous score. I don't know if you guys noticed that. No, but what people those, those rant 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 strings oh, have been used for a couple was of that in things. This movie? Yeah, it was. It was. I don't know. Famous for Citizen Kane. Famous for working with Hitchcock on Psycho Vertigo, North by Northwest, The Man Who Knew Too Much, all kinds of stuff. Bernard Herrmann was a fan of ostinato, which is a short, repeated motif of a few notes, if you can imagine that. The difference between Bernard Herrmann and a lot of classic film composers, including people like, say, John Williams, is that John Williams is going to write like a big melody in a fanfare. Here's the Indiana Jones theme. And you can certainly pick out discernible themes in a Bernard Herrmann score, but... What Bernard Herrmann's really good at and interested in is creating a texture, a mood, a feeling of, you know, you don't walk away humming psycho. There's nothing to hum, really, but you certainly do feel it in your bones and it sticks with you. No pun intended. You talk for just a second about Anthony Perkins. I don't know. I think we do know that he was gay. He was cagey about that for most of his life, but I think Hmm. he, he actually died of HIV. So I think it came out. Around then, he was also mis- mis- mishandled, as he put it, by his mother, sexually abused in some way. And he actually made his Broadway debut debut in a play called Tea and Sympathy, which is about a, an effeminate man who's mocked at the school that he goes to. And then a woman has to, they have, they have to find the right woman to cure him of his effeminacy and, and help him not be, be gay anymore. So it's a really early and really politically incorrect by today's standards. Look at those kinds of things. But Tony Perkins is the guy that you get for that kind of thing. He plays like these effeminate longing kind of characters hmm. really well. He got so tired of being gay that he actually married a woman and turned to like shock therapy and conversion therapy stuff to, to try to beat it. And it's really interesting to try and get through the weeds on that because obviously anything that you read is written from the perspective of somebody that's saying shock therapy, bad, conversion therapy, bad. Uh, obviously, if, if Tony Perkins had just been able to flower as the, the gay man that he want, wanted to be, then everything would be wonderful. But apparently he was pretty tormented by it and wanted to change, but, but not in time not to die of HIV. So really, I mean, the only guy that could play this character. Born, born to play Norman Bates and lived to see that become his legacy. Like, he did do other interesting things, but everybody knows him as Norman Bates. I mean, he just got typecast. And he eventually made his peace with it and did some, some psycho sequels and stuff like that. But he resented it for a long time, as you would if you were, if everybody just expected Norman Bates. Very shy, sensitive, likable guy. Sounds like he was pretty much the guy that you see in Norman's more likable moments, but just one of those perfect sort of, ooh, you couldn't, how how do you cast this? So 1959, Hitchcock is, is, is trying to figure out what his next project is. Hitchcock had trouble figuring out what his next project is because he always wanted to be a step ahead of the audience. He always wanted to do something different and something exciting. And so it was just so hard for him to find 
material because he, he, he wanted to find material that would be exciting for him. And Hitchcock has a problem in the 50s going into the 60s, which is that the French have outdone him with a movie called, with a famous suspense movie called Diablique, which people may have heard of. And all these cheapy film producers like Roger Corman are doing like their Edgar Allan Poe movies and stuff and, and making waves doing these really low budget suspense horror movies that audiences love. So it's like, here's Hitchcock. He's the master. He makes these things for millions of dollars. He makes these giant productions. But then there's these other guys that are making cheapo movies that are doing just as well as he is because they've got provocative content. So Hitchcock has to solve this problem. He has to find a way to stay relevant. And one of his assistants who's out there culling for material, finds Psycho, gives it to him. He loves it. He's, he immediately sees the potential in it. Nobody wants to get on board with it. They all just think it's the tawdry trash. I think it basically is a tawdry trash. And they, they don't want to do it. They're just like, what are, you, what are you talking about? So Hitchcock agrees to make the movie in black and white for under a million dollars using the crew of the TV crew that worked on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So he did it for super cheap. He didn't hire any big stars. I mean, Janet Lee was a pretty big star, but no Cary Grant. They wouldn't have been able to afford Cary Grant or anybody like that hmm. for this movie. And he did it with his television crew in black and white. I mean, also he also thought it would be too gory and like, we're not going to get away with it. Yeah. In color. Yeah. I, I mean, that's always been, uh, that's been my assumption was we can't get away with this in color and a way that we can in black and white. And so dress it up however we want. That's a, pr- a prime factor. Yeah. And so, and Hitchcock was very canny about that kind of thing. He played the audience like a violin, but he also played the censor board like a violin. And there are some hilarious stories of, he submitted the shower scene. The censors said, ah, we saw nudity. We saw violence. And so Hitchcock's like, okay, I'll cut it and I'll resubmit it. And then he submits the exact same thing. He doesn't change a frame. And this time, the three people who thought they saw something are like, we didn't see anything. And the two people who didn't see anything are like, ah, we saw something. And I think he submitted it a third time and just got it through. Never changed a, a scrap of it. They wanted to, him to change the the opening scene in the bedroom with, with in the hotel room with Sam and Marion. And he said, okay, look, I'm going to set a day. You guys send somebody. You can tell me what's acceptable. I don't want to shoot anything that we can't use. You just come and send somebody and he'll tell me what's acceptable and we'll, we'll figure it out. And nobody shows up on that day. And so he just submits the movie as is. His assistants described him as like gleeful in the way, like he's like, yes, I get to go another round with the censor board. I'm going to get him. And yeah, the screenwriter intentionally write things that were never intended to be part of the final cut, but that we can use as bargaining chips. It's classic book writing technique. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you put things in to have them cut so that you can save the thing you're actually. Yeah. And justify the. Yeah. And Joseph Stefano was a young screenwriter that he worked with. Stefano got the job by saying, here is my conception for this movie, Mr. Hitchcock. What if instead of spending two chapters on Marion Crane, the whole opening third of the movie is just Marion Crane and we really sell her story to the audience. And Hitchcock loved that. He thought that was such a fun idea to 
Hitchcock, I have a quote here. You have to remember that this is Hitchcock. You have to remember that Psycho is a film made with quite a sense of amusement on my part. To me, it's a fun picture. The processes through which we take the audience you see, it's rather like taking them through the haunted house at the fairground. So he just really, really cuddled up to the idea that we'd, we'd, we'd really sell a real Marion Crane story that people would really be invested in. And then we would take that away from them. Put it in the bottom of the swamp. Put it in the bottom <laughs> of the swamp with the money. None of it mattered. He just thought that was so fun. And he said, Joseph, if we do that, what we can do is we can cast a star. We're going to get a star. And Janet Lee, of course, was a star. Not a top-tier star, but she was a star. And she wanted to work with Hitchcock. She didn't even read the script, I think. She came and did the thing that's on her tombstone. I think she worked for three weeks. One week on the shower, two weeks on the other stuff. And nobody remembers anything else. Bye-bye, Birdie. Yeah, bye-bye, Birdie. I mean, I like Janet Lee. She's in good stuff, but she's, she's usually doing like a romantic comedy kind of fluff. The existence of Jamie Lee Curtis. Yes. Yeah, we, got, we have, her for that, have her to thank for that. And she does look a whole heck of a lot like Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie. I was noticing. As I said before, Hitchcock had Vera Miles under contract. He had groomed her for Vertigo. She had angered him by getting pregnant. He told her, you should only have two. And she said... Well, Mr. Hitchcock, you got your movie, but I got a son, and I'm happy to have. I'm happy with that bargain. And Hitchcock never forgave her, and I, I think intentionally sabotaged her by putting her in a in a bad role. And a lot has come out in the Me Too era about Hitchcock's relationship with these leading ladies who he would put under exclusive contract and groom up. I don't think he had any kind of actual sexual relations with them, but he was a weird obsessive guy that liked to have young ladies under his thumb. He was not a nice man. He is what I think you'd expect him to be based mm -hmm. on his movies. He has those obsessions. He has that sense of naughty deviant sexuality or whatever. I think, I think we're very blessed that Hitchcock lived in the time he did and had the censors that he had, because I think if he'd been able to just spill his id on the screen the way modern directors do, I don't know if his movies would actually be appropriate to watch. But luckily, he had to work within the confines of his time and, and find a way to make things work. He had a lot of fun keeping the movie a, a secret. He actually spread word that they were looking for an actress to play Anthony Perkins' mother. And so famous actresses, older actresses of the time who were always hungry for a good role were like sending in their resume to try and get the role of Mrs. Bates. And he did this famous thing where he sealed off the set. There were guards at the entrances. People were not supposed to get in. There were no publicity photos. Janet Lee and, and, and Tony Perkins did not go and do the talk show rounds. The only advertising was, we're not going to advertise it because we don't want you to know the dark secrets of this movie. So we're not going to tell you anything. We're not even sending our stars to do publicity rounds because we don't want them to reveal anything. And no one will be admitted to the movie after, the, after it started. And it worked like gangbusters. Everybody wanted to find out what the big secrets of the movie was, were. It's like it was huge, made a lot of money, arguably Hitchcock's best and best, certainly best remembered movie, most influential movie. I think it really did move the culture, for better or worse, towards a, a, away from fear of supernatural evil and towards the fear of psychological evil or just bodily harm. And that is, by and large, where people are today. I mean, we still have ghost movies and ghost stories, but really the whole genre of 
horror is more this kind of thing. And this is what really scares people. It's not what really scares me. I find supernatural evil in movies and stories to be much more scary than the Norman Bates brand. I do too. It's like, even if somebody broke into my house and tried to stab me to death, like, okay, it would hurt. It would really hurt. I don't want to die that way. But it doesn't scare me the way that thinking, oh, there's a, there's a ghost in my house mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, does. I, I think a lot of people, particularly perhaps atheists, are just the opposite. They are like, oh, I don't believe in ghosts. I don't think there's actually such a thing as a ghost. So I'm not scared of that. But the idea that someone could just go wrong in the head and then do terrible things to me or that I could go wrong in the head and do terrible things to somebody else. That's that's a really frightening idea. And I, I acknowledge that is a frightening idea. I, I guess personally, I feel settled enough in my own sanity or something. I'm not afraid of being Norman Bates. <clears throat> You're not afraid of being Norman Bates and you're not afraid of not spotting Norman Bates at this point in your life. Yeah. And then maybe some of that's because I've watched all these darn movies, but, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been snookered by people though. I think we probably could all think yeah, of somebody have. that's mm-hmm. been a Norman Bates. And we all life. may be right now. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we need to talk about the big picture thoughts. Do you guys have any big picture thoughts on the, before, before we get to the movie itself on on the inherent fascination of of this material, like why does our culture love serial killers so much? What's the deal with that? Why are these stories so fascinating? Well, now that you asked in the context of what you just said, I wonder to what extent it's a replacement for the supernatural. There's got to be some dark hidden world that explains our world. <laughs> and maybe it's just in our minds and emotions. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's what I would, that's, I was thinking about this and I think that's what I would say. I think atheists need their boogeymen. Too. They mm-hmm. need their demons. They need their gins. And a way to cope with the evil of this world that's out there. Yeah. Know. But just to say the same thing, I guess, but the evil that's in man. I mean, one of the, the weird things about horror and the problem of sin, the problem of evil, the problem of original sin is one of the most obvious truths in all of our existence. Right. There's not a philosophy or a religion that doesn't try and deal with it. Somehow. Yeah. And, and, and yet, it is one of the most denied, like intellectually denied realities of our existence too. So it's like fundamental, undeniable. If you're going to point out one thing about human nature that's undeniable, it's the fact that we are all messed up and do evil things and do things that we don't want to do or should or no, we should not do and have trouble consciences because of it. Like that is, you can't get more, I don't know that you can get more fundamental than that. Right. And so it's like the problem of human ex- existence is the problem of evil and why we do bad things. Yeah, everybody works hard to deny that about themselves, works hard to deny that about the world we live in, and has to cope with it some way or another. It has to come out. It has to be dealt with. And the intellectual incongruity of it all has to be reckoned with. Right. How's that for us? <laughs> the intellectual- <laughs> well, it's interesting to me as you talk because I'm like, couldn't they do that through just believing in a little bit of evil or in, you know, we're all compromised by evil? There's, but, but, and yet there seems to be <laughs> this need in people to believe in unmitigated, remorseless evil. Yeah. Like, like we all need an actual devil, whether we think it's Norman Bates or and we an think actual it's... actual scapegoat. Yeah. So, well, but even in this movie, it, I don't think it's just Hitchcock's desire to tie up every plot thread that bring that makes a connection from Norman Bates to us. Right. It's and that's a fascination with these serial killer shows and has been for a long time is oh you too. You too have the same unplumbed darkness and all 
if just in the right circumstances, who knows, maybe mysteriously you could be drawn in to become right. unmitigated evil yourself. You could be well, the and, devil. And wouldn't you like it? Right. Is part of it too. Isn't there a thrill to it? Isn't there something enjoyable about it? It's like that bit in, I've been reading or rereading Orthodoxy by Chesterton, mm. and he talks about this very thing where he says, you either have to admit that you can get some real pleasure in skinning a cat and that skinning a cat is, would just be evil. Like you have to, you can't, you can't deny either one of those premises. So instead we try to deny the cat, like, <laughs> you know, and that's his Chestertonian way of, of being clever and saying, we just try to skirt the whole problem and divert it. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it's that exact sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's like nobody can handle the tension of, of, Yes, there there is a weird pleasure we derive from evil acts, and that's what draws us to them. And the reality that they are, in fact, evil, and we know they're evil. Both of those things exist at the same time, and these, these movies and types of things exist to play with both sides of it. And maybe Psycho plays much more heavily with one side than the other. Mm-hmm. But certainly a lot of true crime drama plays with the wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be interesting? Don't you secretly wish, wouldn't you find, what is exhilarating? What does motivate people? What do they enjoy about? Like they explore those types of questions in a way that's really sick and perverse. Mm-hmm. But they do explore it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's part of the, the Augustine thing you always bring up, Jake, which is you want to see the corpse on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. You want to see under the hood into the depths of human evil. And I mean, if you want to, true crime stories are a great way to do that, a great way to indulge your sick curiosity and also comfort yourself with the difference and also to derive, you know, the difference between those people and you mm-hmm. and also derive pleasure from the similarity, the similar perversity between those people. And, and, and have a plausible way out of, of, well, I'm just reading history or I'm watching or participating in something historical and this is the way the world really is and I've we all do well to face it and reckon with mm-hmm. it, right? Like, or so I'm, just, your... I'm, I'm just watching fiction. <laughs> <laughs> you got, you got, yeah, you got, yeah, well, it goes either way. Yeah. <laughs> right, it goes either way. <laughs> right, which is why I think the ending of this movie is actually kind of brilliant. I mean, I'm just jumping the gun maybe a little bit, but I love, I think he, Hitchcock intentionally cast that psychiatrist dude to be glib and full of himself and it's like yeah he'll tie everything up for you and and tell you there's all this freudian thing like he he gives us a way out like we're not norman bates norman bates had x y and z happen to him and it's really terrible and you know he disassociated and blah 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 here's all this jargon and and you are kind of you do kind of have a little bit of safety net at the end of this heart of darkness that you've peered into but then we cut to norman and suddenly we're sharing his head and we're sharing his, his, as one critic I read said, his cosmic alienation. Norman's cosmic alienation at the end is in the prison that he's in and his mind is, is the prison that we're all in. And, and we're meant to still find him as a, as a figure of identification. I don't think that that last shot is all just like, oh, there's Norman. He's, he's bad, just like the and psychiatrist he's no outside said. of you. No, no. Relegated. Well, it, it's funny because the psych, the psychiatrist says, you know, oh no, no, we don't. We psychiatrists, we don't create any anything. We just reveal what's there, which is which is hilarious. You could uh, that's that feel that felt tongue in cheek. But then, my wife and I found ourselves referring to the killer as 
well, but then she did this, and no, wait, we're falling into the into the psychiatrist explanation trap. Like no, we, don't, I, we, we don't believe his explanation. It's fascinating. <laughs> I mean, I've seen this movie a bunch, and in that parlor scene where my favorite scene in the movie, I think the best scene in the movie, where where Norman's talking to her, every time I find myself just entering into the drama of a a young man who's been yeah. who's know, the victim of his mother and of the highway. Yeah, and and and. Is yeah. he going to, he doesn't want to put her into an institution. He wants to take care of her. And it's like, I have to actively remind myself, he's talking about a dead person. This guy is nuts, <laughs> but it's actually a very moving scene just played straight and it works and it, it plays. And as, as I said, I forget on mic or off mic, like I think off mic, there's a version of this movie where Mary Crane leaves the hotel. She thinks that was kind of an odd conversation, but man, that guy really turned my life around. Uh, yeah, well, the, yeah, it is, like you said, off mic. One of the great parts of the movie is the fact that had Mother not killed Marion, she was ready to go back and make things right. Like, it would have turned her life around. And if we can believe Detective Arbogast, they were prepared to forgive her and hush it up. Maybe she'd have lost her job, but she wouldn't have gone to jail. So she really had a shot at redemption. <laughs> and Hitchcock, I mean, he's... He doesn't like character. He says he doesn't like character, but I mean, he certainly is not above symbolism and and character kind of writ large. He likes the idea of there's a baptism that's happening that gets horribly interrupted. Like she's she's taking a shower to to wash herself clean, and then it all goes sideways <laughs> rather famously. Okay, so big picture thoughts on this film gentlemen big picture what kind of big picture thoughts you want i don't know did you like it did you think it was scary i had a lot of fun with it i i just had a lot of fun with it i don't know maybe i'm a psycho but i was talking so ben's wife was over over at the house yesterday with my wife um and i talked to megan a little bit about it and she said she had to watch the movie basically ben i guess you narrated the second half of the movie to her because she was so so creeped out she just didn't she did she it was a soundtrack she Uh couldn't even watch it to me, when I hear that, I'm just like, bullseye, yes, the movie did what it's supposed to. That's, that's so exciting and great. Like, maybe I am a psycho, but when I was a kid, I mean, you know, it all goes back to childhood trauma. My grandpa, you know, he put on a scary old black and white something or other, some stupid Twilight Zone or something. And, and then he'd go outside and he'd creep up to the window and he'd have like a branch or something and he'd hit the window and rattle it. <laughs> and so if there's a movie that doesn't cross whatever line I have, I find it so much fun. I mean, I do. What what I wish this movie didn't have actually was so much of Janet Lee in her bra. Yeah, um, that's the yeah. That's, that's the thing that's annoying to me. Yeah, but but as a thriller, I'm either desensitized or I just have a certain distance from it or whatever, and I and I like it. I mean, it there there is definitely a gleeful fatalist inside of me who wants to be a gleeful nihilist, some some, some that wants to be thrown a chunk of meat every once in a while, just told how truly alienated we all are and how psychotic we all are. And so it's not even Norman Bates that, that I think feeds that it is Norman, but it's also just like the secretary who, who took tranquilizers on her wedding night, the, the, the cop, the, like everybody's actually a psycho in this movie. Like Hitchcock's view of human nature is just so dark. Mm-hmm. I will, I will cop to there being a part of me that has fun with that too. But I think I have fun with it as a thriller, as a 
is a fun little puzzle to figure out. As when, even knowing the twist, when the sheriff says, Norma, Norma Bates has been dead for such, such many years. It's such a great dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so I do like this movie. I, I, I find it sort of cosmically frightening, I guess, like thematically frightening. I've, uh, I've seen it enough that I don't, I'm not like particularly like, Oh no, covering my eyes or anything. Uh, ben, big picture thoughts. I mean, I think it was unsettling, successfully unsettling. I mean, on the one hand, I like it. It's really well put together, well engineered. Perkins is amazing. Yeah. Does an amazing job. I think he's the, I mean, when I say I had fun with it, I'm, I'm thinking of just watching him. Yeah. He's great. Chew up the screen. Yeah. He's he's amazing. He's amazing. He is. He is amazing. I don't know if I would say. He's got like this, like, like point to different people. Like I've got a couple of people in real life and I won't say their names, but then you you can even kind of point to certain actors that have similar levels of like charm and like a young Andrew Garfield or. If you had to cast this movie today and Andrew Garfield, maybe from a few years ago would be like Andrew Garfield circa Spider-Man. Yeah. It would be great casting. Yeah. Like he's the best I could come up with. It is just sort of like who has that level of like charm and sweetness and self-deprecation. Yeah. Like where do you pull that? Like when he says there's some, there's some Bates hotel motel stationary. You'd probably cast Tom Holland actually, but he he wouldn't bring the other stuff. Right. But, but he could bring the charm. Yeah. Norman Bates reminds me of a lot of people from my real life, people who have that sweetness. You know, it's like the guy that you, the small undark version is it's the guy that you lend money to again, even though you know, he's going to not pay you back, but you just like him for some reason. Mm -hmm. Like he does a good job of evoking, Pity and just that little boyishness, right? That like I want to help the the little boy. Yeah, he kind of comes jogging up, almost like a puppy dog when when Marion shows up. And yeah, well, I was gonna say I don't know if I like it mm-hmm. as a whole. I don't want to go watch it again. I'm I'm always conflicted in things like this. I mean, I'm not really a horror movie guy. Sure, but even as a kid, I remember seeing. I mean. Like horror light stuff, like What Lies Beneath with Harrison Ford. Did you guys see <laughs> that, that? That classic, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's sarcasm. People don't yeah. go watch it. No, it's no, no. I, I've seen a few things like that. I mean, even The Sixth Sense. Mm-hmm. And what else? The others. The but, Nicole Kidman others. Yeah, yeah. That one was kind of fun. I remember that one. Yeah, it was. But I think the question I always ask is what I always feel a little uneasy, mm-hmm. sort of along the lines of Augustine, whatever. What am I feeding? Yeah. But like, I just, I just always do. I don't know what else to say about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's worth saying because that's something you have to deal with if you're going to watch a movie like this. Yeah. People's mileage may vary on that. I I don't know what else to say. I don't find this one to cross that line, whatever that line is. Mm -hmm. Although I did forget again, how much sort of semi weird 1950s style nudity stuff we had to put up with. Yeah. I had never seen it before, so I didn't know. Yeah. But. And so I was sort of like, oh, wow. And it just kept going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's like, okay, we're going to get through this pretty quick, I hope. Yeah, I don't appreciate that. I guess we're not. That. I guess we're not. Yeah. And not having seen it, it's like, how much of what they're talking about is important to the plot here? I don't know. Right. I have no idea. Like, I just don't. So it was just like hard. It was like, yeah, that's what it, and so it ended up being all of it. And it was like, well, okay, well, now that I've done that, I know that I can fast, like I can just 
skip that scene mm-hmm. moving forward. But yeah, it was still really yeah. obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's obnoxious. And it is Hitchcock being a provocateur and trying to push your buttons. And certainly people back then would have had their buttons much more pushed than even the most puritanical of people that would watch the movie now, just because the, the level of public indecency has is so different than it was yeah. back then. But this movie's doing any number of things like that. I mean, there's there's a lot of innuendo. There's the just Janet Lee in a bra all the time. And then they show a toilet, which apparently was a big deal. And not just a toilet, but a flushing toilet. This is the first movie to do that. And I saw an interview with the screenwriter where he was like, we were going to so unsettle the audience with this toilet, which I remember happens right before the famous murder, uh-huh. that by the time the murder happened, you know, they were going to be diving under their seat. It's like the toilet was part of the strategy to to so like wind people up, tear apart their inhibitions and stuff, um, which is fascinating because now you see the toilet and you're like, okay, like you, you would never clock that it was even a provocation, mm-hmm. I don't think, now. No. Apparently it was. I mean, this is the era where we're going to be careful with the censors talking about pregnancy. I mean, old sitcoms from the 50s, you don't even say that a woman's pregnant. Like the word, it it just has too many connotations of like, they must have done something to get pregnant. I mean, I guess it's like, it's amazing to think how much the world's changed. So did either of you guys find this movie to actually be like frightening in the sense that you'd expect a scary movie to be? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Especially once... Let's see. Anything inside the house for me. Anything, the detective going into the house, Lila exploring the rooms, that the, stuff got me the most. The, I I don't think of myself as desensitized to, to horror or thrillers or anything like that. I've not seen a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. But I, I, nothing in this movie got me or got to me. Hmm. The, the, the funnest jump scary type thing was when uh mother comes flying out of the bedroom at arbogast at arbogast mm-hmm. with the top down shot which i just thought oh that was cool that was a fun idea mm-hmm. like and that that really and then i had a lot of fun with him falling down the stairs like yeah i, I just I, like I loved shot. the thinking about the mechanic of it mm-hmm. like right in, in the the artfulness of it <laughs> so i don't know like i just <laughs> I don't know if it was just the right mood just or the a, right moment. A connoisseur sipping his, <laughs> his wine. <laughs> it wasn't quite like that, but I, I don't know. Maybe some of it was, I watched it with Amanda and my oldest son. And Well, if you're da- a dad in that situation, then you have one of two choices. Number one, don't do it. Number two, have fun with it. Like, yeah. And, en- and enjoy the fact that they're scared by it. Like, that's, I think, more of how I processed it was like, oh, wow, this is like really doing its work on on these people on the couch next to me, this is kind of fun to observe happening. And I don't know, I was just kind of like, I thought that was, I just thought it was fun. Yeah, I get a big old kick out of that. And that's one of the reasons I enjoy some certain movies like this. Uh, I mean, I'm the kind of guy who even in it, when his own house is empty, except for him, he can at times get a little freaked out. Oh, no, yeah. I can do that oh, to I, myself too. too. Yeah. Oh, okay, all right. Well, you know, I actually have- for the same. But but it's usually like Nathan was talking about earlier. It it it's not this. Like this is prosaic. No, I'm scared of ghosts. I really but the, am. <laughs> but the supernatural, that's different. Like mm-hmm. I have enough of a sense of we live in a a spiritual world that we deny and don't know jack squat about that that stuff. And I can trip myself out on that stuff yeah. real easy. But but the idea of just some like 
a maniac or a, yeah the, the 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 maniac next door that for whatever reason that gets to me i always i since i was a little kid i'm just realizing as we talk i've always thought about well okay i didn't i had my back turned someone could have made it into the closet behind me so I need to open that and be ready uh-huh. and look inside. <laughs> and then I can close it. Then I go to the next one. Okay, I cleared the room. Like, I remember doing th- <laughs> things like that. Who, I don't know where I got that from, but I, I'm sure it's from movies. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, if, I'm, if my wife and kids aren't home and it's night, I'll be scared of like a specter at the window or like those are the kinds of things I imagine are creakings and groanings and like, right. like Ebenezer Scrooge type stuff. Almost, but huh. yeah. I mean, I find this movie creepy, not on a scene to scene basis. I find the the idea of, I guess I would say the, the idea that you don't know where the threshold is. Like in a fairy tale, you always know when you're crossing into fairyland. You know when and where, like if you go into the woods, the big bad wolf might get you. But there is something unsettling about this movie's idea that Marion Crane, yeah, she crossed the threshold in Campbellian terms when she stole the money. But really, she was just doing her thing, and she had no idea she was crossing the threshold into darkness when she pulled off the the road into this random hotel. Mm-hmm. Like, like she doesn't – it's like – in society, we know there's these, as long as we don't cross certain lines, as long as we don't go to that neighborhood, as long as we don't cross the tracks, as long as we don't go in the woods, as long as we don't talk to those people, we have an idea we'll be okay. And this movie says, nah, maybe not. <laughs> maybe you just signed your death warrant and you don't even know it. Maybe you just picked the wrong hotel. Maybe you just got in the car at the wrong time. Maybe you just said hi to the wrong person. And I do find that idea pretty scary Hmm. all right let's talk through this movie we got the credits the most 1960s credits ever Saul Bass invented kinetic typography or he didn't invent kinetic typography but he invented this style of kinetic typography kinetic typography yes moving words my friends it's like that 1960s kind of north by northwest or psycho style and we're immediately in we have these great credits, this Bernard Herman score telling us how terrible everything's going to be. And we're immediately in black and white. And we immediately have something that critics, you know, the critics have often pondered over, which is why include Phoenix, Arizona, 2.43 p.m. Yeah, it's three in a row. It's place, date, and time. Right. As if any of it matters. Even to setting up Marion's story. Like even, even assuming Marion's story is the real story and Norman Bates never d- does his thing. Like why? If is it some kind of joke on Hitchcock's part? No, I think it. I think it's intentional, and I think it. It what it does is it says you are in a gauntlet, so it focuses you right when you see that in a specific time. Was it two forty two? Yeah, two forty three. I think two forty three p.m. Okay, what well, what it says is all right. You're now in a scene. You're in a location, and you're at a specific time, and everything that happens now scene by scene moving forward it matters so you better pay attention to time sequence and order of details so it ends up working as sort of like a distracting element but it also like 
gets like, you super focused in and drawn in. By the way, when the police put this story together, they're going to say it started at 2.40. It's, it's almost that kind Or of something sense. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? So it mm-hmm. creates this like expectation for you as a, as a viewer. And so it's like, okay, I need to know that we're in Phoenix. I need to know that we're in, that it's 2.43. I need to know these details. And I need to also be paying attention to other details like this because this is Hitchcock and it's all going to make sense and piece itself together. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It just puts you in a certain mentality or frame of hmm. of mind that I think achieves a, a an effect like like the toilet, mm-hmm. right? If the if the point of the toilet is oh wow toilet toilet toilet, what other taboos will they cross? Yeah, is- and then suddenly mother shows up with a knife in her hand. Like, oh, shoot. Like, well, I was thinking about the toilet. I didn't expect that. This gets you, I think, I mean, you could say, like, I haven't put too much thought in it, but mm. if it gets you hyper-focused on details and the details of what's coming next, and then maybe that primes you to miss the big picture of, actually, I think that Norman might be the killer. Yeah. Well, what Hitchcock wants you to do through the first third of this movie is focus on that money. He keeps cutting back to the right. money, the money, the money, the money. It's all about the money. Right. Well, and so even in that sense, like it, it is definitely a contributing factor to the idea that Marion's story and the details of it matter. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and, and so it plays into the joke, if you want to call it that, or the surprise, the setup, the... The setup of actually she's dead and we're halfway through the movie. Mm-hmm. We have a whole nother half of the movie left. I will say we were asking for our big picture thoughts on this movie. I love Marion's story so much that. I'm actually always disappointed. I've seen this movie probably a dozen times, and every time I'm like, oh, man, Norman's <laughs> going to kill her? Why does this movie have to be about Psycho? I'm, I'm invested in the this woman and her parent. Like, this is a pretty good Hitchcock movie that's happening mm-hmm. right here, and Norman Bates ruins it for us. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. It's a great, it's a great I want to say joke. Yeah. A, yeah. It's a great yeah. conceit. But like I yeah, actually, I find is. myself caring about her when when she's maternal towards poor Norman in the, the wonderful parlor scene. It's like, and, and when she looks like she's going to find some redemption, it's like nobody ever watches this movie now and doesn't know, even if they don't know the big twist with Norma Bates and Norman, they, they at least know that Marion Crane's done for. Yeah. The biggest, if there's any surprise for Mary related to Marion Crane, it's how quickly she dies. Right. How quickly is the shower scene actually comes. That's the only... Mm-hmm. surprise left for anybody who hasn't seen this movie. Yeah. But I but I like her story. I like her. I mean, I don't like the tawdriness with which Hitchcock tells, especially the first part of the story. But it's very relatable. You know, this woman who's like about to be past her prime and she just wants to get married and her boyfriend's a total sap. And <laughs> she's got these this stupid off stifling office job. And then this boorish man with the $40,000 and she makes one dumb mistake and then she's ridden, you know, guilt ridden and all the stuff with the cops and the sa- the car salesman and like all that stuff. Like this, that's a really good movie. I like that movie a lot mm-hmm. better than I like the the Sam and Lila, you know, adventures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I don't know if you're going to, if you're waiting to ask questions like this, but I was just going to give thoughts on the structure. Yeah. Like. The fact that it does that, you know, sets you up with this other movie and then destroys it. It 
it's just it's part of the world it's part of hitchcock's view of human nature like everyone has these dark secrets Mm -hmm. and now marion's part of that world too because she stole something right and now she's she didn't have a dark secret before that i i'm not saying she didn't i just think you don't know what it is do you oh her dark sleeping with a married man Oh, is he married? He's divorced. Wait, isn't he? he's in the process of divorce. Oh, is it? Okay, oh, that's right. I, but he's sorry. not divorced on yet. her lunch break I, in, in a seedy motel. There you go. Late. There you go. Okay, yeah. yeah. I, sorry, I forgot that. It's very important. So yes, so everyone is that's, is twisted yeah. and has secrets. But then you have like the line, the 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 wonderful little other secretary lady played by Patricia Hitchcock, yeah. Hitchcock's daughter, who says she took tranquilizers on her. Her husband was furious when he found out she took tranquilizers on her honeymoon and she just throws that out there. Yeah. yeah I, think, I think that's important And, and she's offering drugs to Marion and then this other creepy boor guy with all the money is coming on to her in a really creepy old man way. Yeah. And it's just yeah. like, this is a world of darkness where everyone has darkness. And then he turns darkness. around and claims that she was flirting with him. Well, yeah. in her mind, she does. I never oh, thought that he right, actually, because right, right, right. he doesn't, you don't see him say that. It's like right. she's she's creating characters in her mind which is a little foreshadowing of Norman right. creating. And, and the characters she creates are pretty dark. She has like the the guy say, I'll tear the flesh off her or something. Yeah. I think this movie's point of view is. Which plays very much into that, her sympathy with Norman. Yeah. Yeah. They, they are both. I mean, I think this movie sees everybody as, well, I don't know. I'll ask the question. Uh, I don't think Norman Bates is actually the only crazy person in Hitchcock's point of view. No, of I world. think that that whole parlor scene, the whole point is we all are. We're all in our private cages. And in, in, in some of us, one decision makes or breaks it, right? When one act, one crazy act, one decision leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And so she was just a normal, boring secretary that got caught up with a guy who owns or works at a hardware store. And she felt some pressure. She had an opportunity she had this life she wanted to live. She made a decision. And she always thought that up until actually, and this is why details matter in movies, like they're written this way for a reason. Up until her boss saw her on the crosswalk in her car, she felt like she could, you know, she was play acting. She could always go back. She was playing a little game with herself. Mm -hmm. She could still fix it. Mm -hmm. Up until that moment where she got cornered, she she wasn't bothered. She was just playing a game. Yeah. And then she felt trapped and cornered, and that, now she was on the run because she'd been caught at something that I'm not even... I think the movie, I think Hitchcock wants us to think she wasn't even committed to. Do you think that the two stories are supposed to intersect karmically? Like, in other words, is Norman Bates retribution for the money? Like, she made a mistake, and then she pays the ultimate price. Is that the story we're telling, or is it she made nah. a mistake, and unrelated to that natural selection happened and she got weeded out of the gene pool because she met a psychopath who it's just like a nested series of traps or something that's how it felt more to me not like karmic per se but like well as an illustration of how everyone's in their own private trap (laughs) now you're in norman's private trap (laughs) well in in that sense like i don't think i don't think that if she does get retribution retribution i don't think it's for the four hundred thousand dollars i think it's for sleeping with the man yeah well and in that sense she does bring it on. She doesn't do anything to provoke Norman, but he is provoked by her sexuality. He is activated by the fact that she's a sexually potent young lady. That's right. And so it's like the thing that she was using to try and snare a husband is the thing, not really her fault with Norman, but it's the thing that does her in. So Well, she does actively suggest that he get rid of his mom. And so that's like, 
her trying to displace yes. the mom, whatever. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, and so, she's not not using her sexuality in that moment mm-hmm. to to do that. Like she is suggesting to Norman that there are women, maybe even women like her out there. It, like that's part of it, right? When when a pretty woman looks at a handsome young man and says, "Honey, you're trapped," and there are good women out there. This, <laughs> this there's there's subtext. There's subtext. Yeah. And and she may not have in any way as a character, she may not have in any way intended to promote herself, but she also was promoting herself. Mm-hmm. Like she was using herself. She was using her sexuality. She was it was all there. No, Mrs. Bates did not like that very much at she all. She didn't. Mother mother took offense. Mother took offense. There was a problem in mom. That's what moms are for. They deal with problems. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Mother, the blood. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of fun to imagine, or fun might not be the right word, but like the mechanics of Norman dresses up as a mom. He goes, he stabs this woman. And then he goes back. He gets undressed. He turns around. Mother, he sees a pile of bloody clothes and or whatever it is. And. Like what are the what are the, actually the mechanics of in in the novel he gets drunk and that's what triggers the like every time he drinks too much he becomes mother, mother. and that was I think Block attempting to solve that problem but Hitchcock rightfully thinks yeah it's not a problem we actually need to solve yeah yeah have the psychiatrist say a bunch of glib <laughs> jargon at the end and we can just buy it part of the the horror actually is who knows what had to happen right. Like, if you want to think about it, there are all kinds of horrible things that you can think. There are all kinds of horrible thoughts that you can think. Yeah. There are all kinds of, like, let's not forget that there's a mummified body of mom, mother up in the bedroom. Like, in the window when she shows up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm wondering now if, going back to the question of the Phoenix, Arizona, 243, whatever, that does, it doesn't make it feel like karma but it does make it feel like oh just especially with the camera roving through the city it's like there's a million stories this norman bates could intersect with anyone's life but our camera is gonna pick these people and then we go through the window and it kind of gives you that sense of here's a thing that's happening wheels have been put in motion and it could happen to anybody well and it's also super decadent like it it let's Live with 243 again. This is her lunch break. Yeah. And it's 243. Yeah. That's a long time. That's a that's a big lunch break. Like yeah. when did she go on her lunch break that she's so late to get back for? One? Two? Like, I mean, how late do you want it to start? Because I'm putting it at somewhere between 11 and 12. Yep. Yeah, we could, we could be gracious and say she got a late lunch, a one o'clock. Okay. All so, right. So two hours. Yeah. It is interesting to me, and I can't decide whether this is me reading this into the movie from 60 years now, vantage point, or whether it's part of the movie's design, and that none of the women, including Janet Lee, feel sexual in a way that reads as sexual to me exactly. Like, even Janet Lee, for all that we see of her and for all the things she's asked to do, has kind of a cold mother or grandmotherly kind of air. She's got a certain kind of hair. She's got a, a, a cold sort of frigid quality 
to her. Like there's not a lot of heat between her and the Sam character. I mean, there's there's tawdriness. There's stuff that we see that's that's that we all wish wasn't in the movie. But in terms of chemistry between the actors, the only person that Marion, the character of Marion or the actress Janet Lee, has any chemistry with the, with the, in this movie is Norman. And I don't know if there. I don't know if that's part of the. And then you then you've got Lila, who's also this like not like desexed in a certain sort of way mm-hmm. woman. And I don't know if that's just me thinking that all 1950s style babes are kind of desexed one way or another, or if that's the movie part of the movie's design. But I don't know. I mean, I actually kind of feel the same way about Grace Kelly or even Marie Saint in North by Northwest for being as overtly sexual as Hitchcock wants them to be. They have a kind of frigidity, a kind of coldness to them. I mean, Hitchcock's type, I guess, is a woman that's very sexually available, but also emotionally unavailable. Emotionally unavailable. Yeah, there, you put your finger on it. None of these women give you anything emotionally. The only person that Marion really gives herself to emotionally well, is Norman. Hitchcock doesn't care about people. Yeah. So why would he care about that? I guess. But he makes it part of his, what he's doing. Yeah. Somehow. He, it's, he makes it a feature, in other words. Yeah. It's not a bug. I mean, it, it makes this movie peculiar and interesting in its own way. All right. So we all go a little mad sometimes. Marion goes a little bit mad, steals money from Mr. Cassidy. Anything you guys want to say about Mr. Cassidy or the, the yeah. office scene or... I think we've already said it. Which Just is, some fun went into that character. Uh-huh. And I like that. Mr. Cassidy? Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting to me how much they didn't, they wanted him to be boorish, but he, he wasn't as boorish as he would be now if you wrote the character. Like maybe in the age of Me Too, you just have to do a little bit more to say, this guy's a creeper, but they didn't overplay their hand. They played their hand. They just didn't overplay their hand with that character. You will pick up on a lot of mother and parent stuff. That guy has a daughter whose life he's kind of trying to control one way or another. He tells Marion about mm-hmm. Sam and Marion say when they're joking around in their little bedroom tryst, he says, we could go back to your house. So we'd have to turn the portrait of mother around. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's a whole thing about him being willing to meet her mother in the first place. Right. Uh, I hate talk about like microaggressions and I hate all the sort of like women live in a world where men are always mansplaining and manspreading and all this kind of stuff. But I think Hitchcock does a nice job of putting you in the the paranoid mind of Marion Crane in such a way that you do feel threatened by pretty much every male character in this movie until Norman Bates. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the Mr. Cassidy doesn't have to do anything overtly, you, you know, he doesn't slap her on the butt or anything like that. But but you just feel like this is the kind of man that probably is predatory towards young women one way or another. Well, he's he's said so. He's basically said, I'm willing to buy anybody I want. Mm-hmm. And so what's your price, baby? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you, the whole point of giving her that cash was to flex. I never carry around more money than I can stand to lose. Right. And the fact that this is happening all in front of her impotent little mustached boss guy makes him complicit in it. I mean, it really is. Yeah, he's he's like dangling her as bait. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, and the what is the what does the comic relief secretary lady say? Like, I can't imagine why he didn't want to talk to me. Or she it's wants because to. he saw the ring on my finger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's she <laughs> she wants <laughs> you wish Patricia Hitchcock. <laughs> so she. uh 
steals the the 40k you can you could buy a whole gallon of gas in Biden's America for that much it's a wonderful amount of money and she she sees her boss she drives away she hits the highway I just think this is a wonderful section of the movie like I think this is its own compelling story I I think Hitchcock probably did just intend it as a joke like I actually as Hitchcock do not care about these characters or this story that much but at least that's how he always talked about it. Like it's it's all just set up for the to pull the rug out of your, from under your feet. But but I think it's its own really good movie. Maybe just because Hitchcock's a natural filmmaker. Maybe because he had sympathy for these actors. I don't know. But like, is, is there a better fear of authority scene than the policeman? Like yeah. the image of him staring through the window. I mean that sticks with me about as much as anything in this movie and and the whole thing kind of reminds me of guilt dreams I've had and things like it really puts you in the mind of somebody who, who ran away. I mean, even just the conversation with the car mechanic guy, the it's like, it's really well done and well observed. Like this is how he would be. This is how she would be. And then the cop across the street. Yeah. Sort of sinister. But then as she leaves, he kind of reveals himself. Like we get a moment or two sort of outside Marion's, head there. I don't know. I mean, would you guys say that in your point of view, is, is this beginning just the shaggy dog story, just a, a setup for a payoff or does it resonate as something more than that? I think I already kind of said what I thought about that. Like the thematically, you know, everyone's hiding something. There's all these deep, dark secrets everywhere. Otherwise, I don't know what to think. It works. <laughs> It works to get you invested in the movie. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess that's what a shaggy dog story is for, but I don't know what else to say. I mean, I resent the idea of, a, of it as a shaggy dog story because, I mean, like I said, I, I actually do resent Norman Bates or, or Norma Bates or whoever you are, Mrs. Bates. The, the, this movie does feel like it kind of ends with the shower scene to me in some ways, at least in terms of my actual engagement with any kind of human being. I mean, what Hitchcock wants you to do is actually transfer your loyalty to Norman there when he comes out and cleans up and you do, I mean, there's a famous moment where the car, you're not sure if the car is going to sink. And as yeah. an audience member, you're like, Oh, come on car. Which is, you know, the like whole point, the, the, the mm-hmm. classic Hitchcock trick. The only reason to put that car in is to not only to make you sympathize with Norman, but then to rub it in your, rub your nose in it and make you say, Oh, wait a second. I'm, I want this guy to get rid of this body. What's wrong with me? Hitchcock loves, 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 loves that kind of thing. <laughs> Okay, so she gets to the hotel, Bates Hotel, and we met meet the wonderful Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins, a guy who loves his mother and twelve, talk, twelve vacancies. Twelve vacancies. Twelve rooms, twelve vacancies. There's some stationery with Bates Motel in case you want to make your friends back home jealous. And he like laughs at himself a little bit after he's like delivers the line that he's been practicing. Yeah, the line that he's been practicing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be right back with my trusty umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is wonderful. He is the first non-threatening male in this whole movie. I mean, I guess Sam, her boyfriend, is kind of, but he's such a stiff, square, like unsympathetic. Mm-hmm. Like he's kind of well, her, and he's teasing and harassing her. Yeah, like he's like, like he's going to make the promises on one end, but also he's like, yeah, I don't want to meet your mom. Okay, fine, I'll do it. But, yeah. only, but only if we if it ends with a little, you know what, and yeah, got to turn that picture around. It, it is like if this movie was just a domestic drama, there's no way 
he's happy when she shows up with the money. Like it's such a stupid right. thing that she's doing. It's like I mean, it's no there's no way that anyone of sense would be happy either, but this guy's like such a square, like he's not even gonna be happy on any level. So, all right, we've talked around and talked a little bit about the greatness of Anthony Perkins. What do you guys think it is like that that makes this performance such a magical portrait of madness or whatever it is? Like, well, what's the trick? How's he doing it? This is number two on the AFI's top list, top villain, 100 villains, after after Anthony Hopkins as, whatchamacallit? Hannibal Lecter. Two Anthonys. Good for Anthonys, <clears throat> play good psychos, I guess. Followed by Darth Vader. Followed by Darth number Vader. Number three. Yep. But Darth Vader should have been number one, frankly speaking. I mean, if I say villain movie and you have to complete the next sentence and you don't have time to think, if I just go up to somebody in the street and say, villain movie, go, they say Darth Vader. They don't say Norman Bates. They don't say Hannibal Lecter. They say Darth Vader. Totally. Yeah, that's iconography related. It's not necessarily effective on screen. There's a reason. No, performance. Or even influential on screen. Yeah. For performance-wise, I'd say Anthony Perkins is right up there for sure. Well... Mm-hmm. What do you guys think? How's it work? It's really hard to quantify. It's kind of kind of magical. I mean, some of it is just like genetics. Like he's got that handsome boyish kind of thing going on already. So some of it's just casting. But yeah, I don't know. There's a there's a a charm and sweetness that boyish charm and sweetness that he's able to give you that makes it really creepy and awesome. Yeah. What it taps into is a, a real type, actually. Like, I think, okay, I mean, if we want to get canceled, he's tapping into his broken sexuality, mm. which if you've known people who are this way and are hiding dark secrets, it just resonates as true, yeah, as real life. And so there are people that, I, that he reminds me of that have a so that similar sort of like Sweet boyish, boyish yeah. innocent thing that's hiding a real sexual brokenness or deviancy and deep dark secrets that are really twisted and they fool a whole lot of people and they are really good at getting sympathy and are really good at just sort of drawing you in and making you pity them and and then well, eventually, and, you, and nobody ever wants to believe the worst thing. And there's there's a there is a secret, there is a thing behind it, and eventually it comes out. And I I've seen that story play out in multiple people, and I have very particular people in mind mm-hmm. and that Norman Bates reminds me of in real life. And so you have a man who was likely sexually molested, and who certainly was was gay and deeply troubled by his conscience and by his... You mean in Anthony Perkins? In real life. And he's, I think he's tapping into all of those things in a way that's visceral and real and really sad, actually, if you think about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. There's a kind of sweetness. Somebody who's been stunted in their sexuality, it can they can turn out all kinds of ways, but I think we've all known people who have... A sweetness, like they learned how to please, maybe right. maybe to avoid danger in a in a terrible family situation. They learned how to be pleasing, how to smile, how to have charm as a defense mechanism, and they never got rid of a bunch of boyish things that are that can actually be quite charming. In a well, they end up they find that those things end up serving them well in all right. kinds of contexts. Yeah, I think that's true. I think he definitely reminds me of people too, and. 
just feels much more real and down to earth as a portrait of a so the, the, the mistake that actors make, I think, is I'm playing a psychopath, so I need to play psycho. I need to play madness. And no mad person ever thinks they're mad. A mad person thinks he's the king of England. And so if you're portraying that person on screen, what you need to do is not play a crazy person, play the king, the king of, of England. England. Exactly. And, and I think that's what Anthony Perkins does so well in this performance. He's not playing a crazy guy with a bad mother. He's playing a broken a, boy. A broken boy with a bad mother. He's just playing that. He he you know, there's a couple shots in the movie, namely the famous last shot where he is playing the iconography of madness. And he's good at that too. But for most of the move, but those are just short punchlines. For most of the movie, he's just playing the reality of of what Norman Bates thinks. Including the cunning. Yeah. Like the cunning that you realize is always it becomes more obvious as the movie goes on. But it's not the cunning of I've got to cover up my crimes. It's the cunning of, oh, my mother's going to get in trouble. And and I think he just uh And I have to protect her. And I yeah. And you're right. He 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 threads a nice needle of of darkness, like of getting darker as it goes on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was trying to think of who, who, like, it's the difference between Heath Ledger's Joker and Jared, like Jared Leto's like, I'm the Joker, therefore I must do crazy things. Whereas Heath Ledger is playing, I'm a very smart, broken, anarchist rogue who happens to be crazy. Like, I'm not playing crazy. And I would argue Heath Ledger's at his least compelling when he's playing crazy. Like, I'm fiddling with the detonator in my crazy nurse costume. I don't like that stuff half as much as when he walks into the gangsters the first yeah. the first time. And it's like, this guy's smart. This guy's, he, he's he's wearing war paint, as they talk about in the movie. But he's not, he, he's not just a psychopath. Like, he has a real point of view. He has real wounds. Like, he's, you can't play the Joker as the Joker. You have to play the Joker as something else, whatever that may be. And it's the same problem with Joaquin Phoenix. Like Joaquin Phoenix isn't given anything to do in that stupid movie besides mm-hmm. just be just crazy, be crazy. And it's like, I don't know people who are just crazy, quote unquote. I know people who think the wrong thing about themselves or, or are broken in a way, but, but, but they have a, a logic in their own head that makes sense to them. And mm-hmm. that's the way to play psychopaths. And it's completely consistent with itself. Yeah, yeah, it's, exactly. It, it, the scary thing, as Chesterton says in Orthodoxy, the scary thing is that it's a closed loop, that it doesn't, that there's no sunshine in it. And like, yeah. it's actually more rational. Like he says, the man in the madhouse who thinks he's the king of England, like that's, ex- if, if you were a, uh, the king of England and they were trying to persecute you and keeping you from the throne, they'd put you in a madhouse. There's nothing in his worldview that doesn't make absolute sense that isn't, Absolutely explained, yep. explicable. And that's how Norman Bates is. And, he, and, and Anthony Perkins is so good at it that I'm actually pulled into the drama every time. I love that parlor scene, best scene in the movie, best scene maybe in Hitchcock's career, I'd say. Best dialogue scene, at least. I'm always pulled into the drama of Marion and Norman, these two broken people who just happen to encounter each other on a rainy night. And he's, you know, obviously attracted to her, but way too shy to do anything about it. And she knows it and she's being kind of warm and maternal. And he's got this awful mother that he's, he's talking about just these, these, these two lost souls that have drifted together for a moment. It it has that feeling. And and then it's punctured by Norman's increasing (laughs) craziness. (laughs) But it really does get that feeling that you like if you're made a new friend and you find that you're both on the same page of about a lot of things like the parlor scene has that kind of like 
you meet somebody and your energy's vibing, not in a sexual way, but just in like, we understand each other mm-hmm. kind of a way. We we both really do feel trapped. You know, we've all had that experience of meeting somebody for the first time and you just click. This is a really nice scene about two people clicking and he doesn't ruin it in the context of the scene, even though he, he goes a little crazy, quote unquote. He, he doesn't, when she walks away from that encounter, she thinks, oh, we clicked. That was nice. Um, mm-hmm. He's obviously depressed by his mother. But Anthony Perkins plays it just right. He delivers all those speeches. We're all in our private traps. We scratch and claw, but only at the air. And then I th- when he gets angry at her, if you love somebody, you don't do that to them, even if you hate them. And he gives that big angry speech. You know, did you know what they do in those places? But she's harmless. And then Marion kind of backs off. And then he kind of smiles and looks at the ground and says, I've thought about it myself sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Man. People always mean well. They cluck their thick tongues and shake their heads and suggest, oh, so very delicately. Just one of the best dialogue scenes in all of moviedom, I think. It happens to be, like, have a whole context, a whole story outside of it that <laughs> gives it added interest, shall we say. But I really like that scene. And that gets it. And so Marion's like, yay, I've decided to do the right thing. I'm not going to, I'm going to get out of my trap. And she goes and she, she makes the decision and she tallies up how much money she's going to owe the $700 on that stupid, useless car swap that did nothing to get the cop off of her trail or, or anything. Never made any sense. Never made any sense. But she's like, I'm going to wash myself clean. And she gets in the shower. She has a great shower. She goes back. She gives the money back. It's a, beautiful story of redemption and the human spirit triumphing in the face of nah she gets stabbed in the shower to death by mrs bates or by norman bates you know the big twist what do you guys think of the shower scene i mean it is so iconic does it was it kind of just a stripped of no pun intended of all power because it's just like well i've seen this on commercials and montages and stuff or no it's still what's weird is that it seems to boil down all the fear and the violence into iconography if that makes it it becomes it's like an abstraction mm-hmm, of what would yeah. happen and it feels like a very heavy and cre- and i i won't say i was scared but on the other hand there is something scary about it i think you put your finger on it. i think because it makes it an abstraction it doesn't let you off the hook with like if you just see a knife go into flesh you actually disassociate because you start thinking about special effects. You start thinking about the actress's nudity. You start thinking about... And once you've seen that one time, you've seen it. Right. It's like, but okay. once you, this taps into an idea and it portrays an idea that you can, you've never actually wrapped your head around, not really. And so it's like you could watch it a hundred times and each time... And I think for that reason, in the same way that we said in The Godfather, the the thing that we all kind of agreed was actually most violent was Carlo kicking the window out while he's being garroted. Even though you don't see blood, it just, there's something about the idea of struggling against being strangled such that you kick a window out. Like that sticks with us more than some of the bloody stuff. It's just like, it's not all about a knife going into a human flesh. It's about putting your hands out. It's about saying, please, no. It's about... There's humanity that this montage actually manages to capture in her death that your typical horror movie scene downstream of this, it becomes about biology. For like, Here's what the human body does if you cut it open. But no, this is like the character of Marion Crane pleading for her life, the, the life running out of her. Like, I find it, it leaves pro- so many questions open by what it doesn't show too. Like, I can imagine easily 
I mean, I think I may have even had this thought, like, wait a minute. So I know that see, the shower scene happens, but we still have half a movie left. Like, is she going to be okay? Like, is, yeah. Like, is she, what's next? Yeah. Is she, is she going to, we're we going to see her breathing on the floor? That Like what? I don't know. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, also, I don't know. It's just the, yeah, it's horrifying. I think it's still horrifying. I hate the fact that the iconography is so over used because it really is taking something pretty powerful and like it doesn't need to be the copy the cover of the dvd it doesn't and it certainly doesn't need to be in like Mm -hmm. hey remember old hollywood they used to do fun things Uh, here's a scene from gone with the wind and here's marion crane getting stabbed to death in the shower scene famously 78 cuts 52 camera setups Hmm. holy cow i didn't realize yeah no that's nuts it's not 78 like edits not 78 Stab wounds. <laughs> I, uh, I got you. Uh, no, I see what you did there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Janet Lee never had to do nudity for the movie. She's always wearing something. Although I think they did bring in a model to to do some stuff. It is, you know, we always talk about Hitchcock and the bomb blowing up thing, planting the bomb under the table, telling the audience it's there, then letting them dread it. It, it is interesting that Hitchcock's, by, by the thing that he's most famous for, is iconically not that. It's the bomb. You didn't know the bomb was under the table and now it's going off. Maybe you know there's a bomb because the movie's called Psycho and you know something, the music, something's going to happen. happen. But I think audiences at the time really might have been like, maybe Janet Lee's the psycho for stealing this money. And then this guy said, we all go mad. This movie's about like people go mad. Like They don't necessarily know this is what. We're going to follow her descent into madness and that's been the whole setup. Like she thinks this cop is, she's doing the thing. She's like, Oh, yeah. Like, okay. So what's she going to do? Yeah. We all go a little mad. She's going to go back to, to what's his face? And she, he's going to reject her. And then she's going to what? What's she going to do next? Like, yeah. Yeah. That's not. It's fun to think that that could have very well been what everybody was thinking. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, I think, you know, you just, you can't go back. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. It's just like you, you, there's no way to watch this movie the way that it was intended to be watched. Like nobody doesn't know. If if you don't, if you happen to have somehow missed that that's what happens in the movie, then all you have to do is get out your trusty Blu-ray or pull it up on a streaming service and chances are they'll choose that image. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like it's this it's the shower stab movie. That's the thing that happens. And then Hitchcock spends so much time on Norman Bates cleaning up the sort of Film theorists and critics of the time, they love this. They, it's, it's audacious because it's switch. We're, we're, we're with Marion and then she's, she's pulled away from us. And so we're looking for somebody to identify with, to, for somebody to... And so we feel bad for Norman and hope he gets it all cleaned up perfectly. And, and he becomes the audience <laughs> surrogate for the rest of the movie. <laughs> and it is a neat oh, trick. Get all the blood. Be sure that you oh, get it all washed off your hands and get it all down the drain. Oh, I hope you don't drip it as you yep. put her body into her Is he going to forget the money? Will he forget the money? Yes. Isn't Don't the money, the money there on the dresser? The There's the money. It is Don't funny. forget that newspaper. And it is one of those things where you're just like, "Don't forget the money," and then you're like, "Oh, the money." <laughs> like, <laughs> He's not even going to look at it. Oh, it's just no, going to be the money's going to be flushed down the drain. <laughs> All of our resolutions to our story are gone. Right. And, and I do feel I, there is part of me that really doesn't like that. Like I've said no, numerous times now, like. I know it's the most famous trick in all of cinema, but it's a pretty naughty trick. Like you really did spend 40 minutes making me invest in this woman and in her thing. And 
And then, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I guess it captures the nihilistic horror of murder. Like, that's what a murder does. It cuts somebody's life off and their story's done when it wasn't supposed to be. But narratively, I do feel interrupted. Like, I really do, like, Marianne's story was interesting. Thanks well, a lot. It still goes on. You get Sam and Lila take <laughs> it up the cause. All right, let me ask, because we're getting to, and we'll go through the rest of the film pretty quickly, folks, but because there's not that much more to talk about, actually. Vera Mills and and, and uh, Bergast and like that whole story. A, do you guys agree with me that they're boring? B, do you think that that's a feature or a bug? Arbogast, I like. Yeah, I like Arbogast, Yeah, too. I like him. Although I'm squarely in Norman's corner when the two of them face off and Arbogast's like, trying to figure it out like i think my sympathy is still with like norman's being oppressed and this guy keeps asking too many questions and he won't go away and i was in arbogast court i was like this guy's obviously a liar with a bad conscience and arbogast knows that on some intuitive level yeah i just enjoyed the conflict of it in that sense like i don't know like i i hate that the movie can make you i hate that somebody like hitchcock can make you sympathize with a norman bates Mm -hmm. but we all have our guilty secrets. I mean, we've all been there. Hopefully most of us haven't been in a swamp waiting for a car to sink with a corpse that we murdered. But we are not incapable of sympathizing with a moment like that. No, let me cover it up. Stop asking questions. <laughs> Stop asking questions. Yeah. Okay, so what about Sam and Lila? We'll get to Arbogast in a minute. But uh, do you think it's a feature or a bug that they're just as wooden and cardboard and stupid as they are? I mean, it, you're making that movie today and now they're falling in with each other. Even in the hotel room. Which is part of the script. The guy pushed for it. But A, it does present a little bit of a problem of likability because if, if Sam's going to... Fall in with the sister. The sister after... While looking for the missing... Yeah. But you can imagine in another Hitchcock movie, they'd have the kind of witty banter and yep. they'd fall in love. But Hitchcock was just like, nope. Anything that's in the script, I'm going to cut. Like, I don't care. The point is to the audience. The audience doesn't care about these characters. They care about the mystery. And so let's get people back to that house as quickly as possible, get to the set pieces. and I mean, Hitchcock, on the, on the one hand, is still able to use them as audience avatars, and I felt sus- suspense on their behalf. Yes. Just fine. Yeah. Just fine. It, it, and it doesn't matter, even if it is a bug, it feels like a feature. Yeah. It doesn't really matter to me. I don't know what he yeah, intended. It's you know like what I mean? It's like it works. It works. It, yeah, it just works. And so you can, you can argue that it might have been better but it would have been a different movie. And it's sort yeah. of like the Luke Skywalker problem. Mm-hmm. I feel like that. isn't a problem. Yeah. Right? Like at this point, they're just two, there's a guy and a girl. And so you're one of them. Which would you be? And they know something's up. They're already on to Norman. Just like yeah, you. Yeah, you're, you're in the Horman. The Horman. You're in the horror movie. <laughs> in the, I Norman, you're say in the Norman's Nest. In the Norman's Nest. Yeah. <laughs> you're in the horror movie. You're in the... The situation and all you need are audience avatars facing up against the primeval horror that lurks around the corner known as Mother. Yeah, it's like Mina and Jonathan Harker and Dracula. They're so yeah. boring, but the interest is in Dracula and in Van Helsing, which this movie's Van Helsing sucks. And no King Laugh shows up. Yeah, an old King Laugh shows up. Listen to the Bookings episode on Dracula or read the novel Dracula if you want to find out about old King Laugh. So... Yeah, I don't know. Let's see. There's the Arbogast murder, arguably for people watching it today, a more fun sequence than the shower sequence because we all know that's coming. But uh, watching Arbogast creep through the house and then like you were saying earlier, Jake, just the... She comes flying out of the bedroom up from the top down shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
which is the reason they did that was because Hitchcock was like, if we're gonna, we have to choose our camera angles really carefully because we don't want to feel like we're cutting away from anything. We don't want to feel like, we want to feel like it's incidental that you don't see mother's face. We don't want to feel like mm-hmm. we're hiding it. Yep. So just do the, doing this God's eye view kind of thing will feel pretty inevitable and pretty natural in that scene. And then you have that wonderful stumble down the stairs, which is actually the actor in front of a, like a projection or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the death of poor Arbogast. I will say in terms of just horror movie creeps, the Bates house is a pretty amazing, amazing. The mise-en-scene, the, the, just the, the prop, the story this tells of this poor boy stuck in this Victorian nightmare world of, of depravity, like the the little things in the background, the toys, the yeah. oh, especially when his she room. goes walking through. Yeah, especially when she goes walking through. Yeah, it's horrifying. Yeah, it's horrifying. Room, that, that little bed. Well, and again, the rabbit missing the toy rabbit missing its ear. Yeah, just all kinds of things. It's yeah, that's the kind of thing that gets under my skin. Is like, <laughs> what was what this? Happened? What was his life actually like? Absolutely, it's it's, it's and again. I have a friend and I'm picturing a house and I went and slept over there when I was a kid and that's what it was. The collection of relics, the dark space in the basement where you dare not went uh, go and the toys and the decrepitude and the old Victorian of it all and the the kind of just that ugly, nasty, psychic weight that a place can accrue when bad people are living there. This movie really channels that Really, well, in a way that's not really gothic or over the top, but like it just—I I think it just feels like how Norman and and Norma's house would feel. I think so. Oh, I was going to say something else about his performance, which is after he sends Arbogast off the first time, he smiles. Yeah, he smiles, and it's like I, what I feel like it is is it doesn't matter what happens now, but there's a good chance we can feed Mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's how I feel. <laughs> Arbogast is already toast there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Well, and I love Hitchcock's restraint in that once he's shown you one murder and one body disposal, all we need is one shot of Norman standing by the swamp after Arbogast gets it to yeah. tell you everything yeah. that that happens. Yeah, so we got the Arbogast set piece. We got the Lila set piece. The famous revelation Filmmaking, filmmaking is good. Like, can, we're not, it's not just, we've got a story beat. We've got to reveal the mother, but how are we going to do it? Let's make that corpse look like it's alive. How are we going to do that? Well, let's have the woman's hand bat the bulb so it can swing back and forth and the light can be playing on the sockets of the eyes. And it's all visual. It's all, I mean, I know I'm saying an obvious thing, but I think it's the kind of thing you don't think about when you watch a movie. Like, Hitchcock had to figure out a way to visualize this and make it scary. And he did. And then old, success. Yeah, success. Good job. And then mm-hmm. Norman comes running out, and he's, if you can't tell what he, he actually screams, I'm Norma Bates. I missed that. Um, yeah, it's I hard. did too. I, I only heard it looking at movie quotes. I discovered it because I had the subtitles on, as I usually do these days. But yeah, it's a great little scene. And then he makes that really weird face as... Sam. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it's like, what's even going on with this guy? I mean, it is a bit of madness acting, but we've saved it until that moment, and it's it's good madness acting. And then we have the famous scene that Roger Ebert said is an anticlimax taken almost to the point of parody. The the ridiculous or is it psychiatrist scene? Lila says, "Did he kill my sister?" And the psychiatrist says, "Yes." 
and no. (laughs) (laughs) He's such a doofus. I like your take, Ben. What was my take? Wasn't your or was it your take? I don't know. What's the take? The I think we already said it. Yeah, maybe maybe we said it. We said it early. Yeah, Yeah, whatever it was. But it was. uh, Oh shoot! Help me. It was a great Uh, take. Right. It was like he he gave the audience. Well, Nathan started saying it too, but. I forget who said what. We he gave the audience permission to put it push it aside like it's been explained and we're not we're not Norman. But but he made the expert glib I, and complacent yeah, and right. stupid <clears throat> in order to say, Yeah, if you if you're an idiot that needs an explanation, oh yeah. Here it is. Here it is, take yeah. it, sucker. But then But we're gonna but that's not the final word actually. Right. The final word is staring at staring into the face of madness itself, this man trapped somewhere far in the recesses of his mind while mother controls everything. The, there was a review I read that said in terms of cosmic alienation, there's there's two great movies and one is the guy finding himself in the house at the end of 2001 and the other is the last shot of Norman Bates. And I think that's a canny or perhaps uncanny comparison, hmm. that, that kind of feeling of alienation that's evoked in, uh, in both cases, a guy just trapped somewhere yeah pretty spooky stuff and then you guys catch the little famous subliminal edit or maybe not so subliminal edit mother's face appears no um it's really quick you have to almost pause it but uh, you actually see the 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 corpse face of mother oh appears over norman as we cut from norman oh maybe i did to the the end of marion crane's story as the car is pulled out of the mud huh i might Um, have caught that They'll see and they'll know. They'll say why she wouldn't even hurt a fly. Wonderful last line. Okay, final big question. Our culture has lost its sense of sexual deviancy as being anything deviant. This movie is actually pretty politically incorrect in saying that a transvestite weirdo sexually deviant dude would also be a murderer. The psychiatrist, well, yeah, it is in that sense. But the psychiatrist even whitewashes that because you've got the detective or whoever in the room saying... So is he a transvestite? No, let's explain it away. A transvestite dresses up to achieve a kind of sexual sexual gratification, but this was different. Right. Yeah. So the thing that people always say is that horror movies are essentially conservative, that it is an essentially conservative genre because it is saying play with sex, die. (laughs) I mean, that's the basic theme of, mm, I'd say 60 to 70% of all horror movies, if not more. Uh, cross, Cross the threshold into... Bad behavior, deviate from being a good girl. Pay you know, for it. We we can say we could say what we we don't have to say Norman's direct karma or anything like that. But the fact is, this woman was messing around with things she shouldn't have messed around with. She was using her sexuality in a way she shouldn't have, and she died. And she died because of a broken sexual deviant man who was mm-hmm. hurt in some way that children should never be hurt. So basically, twisting God's design for sex rots and kills you. And rots and kills other people too, which is a very conservative point of view. So do you guys think that this that a movie like this actually does uphold <laughs> a value like that, a value that we would agree with? Or do you think that it doesn't? And why or why not? I don't know that I even have an answer for this question. I just think it's a question worth answering or asking at least. I think superficially they do, but ultimately they're transgressive. Mm-hmm. And I think I think they're transgressive in the same way that the old school operas are transgressive, where they exist. Like if you watch a Mozart opera, they exist to allow you 
in into the decadent world of Don Giovanni and then to have some catharsis at the end when he yeah. gets drug off by the demons into hell. Mm-hmm. And so it as a coping mechanism for the sexual deviance in your own heart that allows you to revel in it for a certain percentage of the movie and then get some catharsis that's exculpatory, lets you off the hook so that you can go back to it or continue down a progression in real life. I think it I think it ultimately can be a stepping stone into deeper deeper deviancy for, for, for that reason. So I don't I don't think yeah on a superficial level I think that's true, but on an ultimate level I think no, this is all part of the twisted perverse process of of because you have to if you're going to give yourself over to sexual deviancy, you have to find ways to cope. Mm. You have to find ways out. You have to find ways to to deal with it, and this the genre ultimately becomes that, or becomes so interconnected with it that I mean, I think that's just I think they tend to feed off of each other, yeah. and that's why you have you know that's why Halloween can be such a perverse, sexually debauched time of of year is, mm. and why the people who many of the people you, you find most into it, you know, are the you know, the woman who wants to use it as an excuse to dress as, to, to be more modest mm-hmm. than she normally would, to have an excuse for that sort of thing. But if you're going to go to a party and flaunt your immodesty, it's actually nice to go to a party where someone else is going to be dressed up in such a way that reminds you, you're going to die. Yeah. You actually want both things. I think um, you want both. And I think that the, the other provides counterbalance to the tension you feel about your own. Right. And... It gives you permission to go that much farther. If I've looked into the face that I'm, this is going to cause me to die, then I, f- I don't feel as bad about going there. Yeah. I feel like I've, I've dealt with it or coped, or I, I feel like it's been dealt with. I feel like I've had some kind of- I've paid my price. I've paid the price. I have, I've had some release cathartically that, that gives vent to the deep understanding that I have that I will be judged for this. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think the nature of catharsis is a complicated thing because obviously none of us are against it or we would never watch against it writ large as a thing ever because otherwise we wouldn't watch Star Wars. We wouldn't like stories. That's right. Yeah, I think even a a dark story like this, fairy tales that say there's a big bad wolf and sometimes he eats people. They can be good. They can be good. I, I think a little bit of a reminder is good. I think some of it is diet. If your diet is just Halloween movies and Psycho and everything. You've got some splaining to do. I don't know that this movie in and of itself, I think, is necessarily evil for everyone to watch. But, but yeah, I, I agree with you. People do want catharsis. I will say I miss the days when Hollywood was smart enough to know this, that they needed counterbalance. Like these days, a lot of horror movies just want to say, yeah, it's pretty great to be Norman Bates, actually. And that's a really dumb point of view. Because that's actually not very satisfying, even to the little budding Norman Bates that watched the movie. It's more satisfying to say you you can't get away with Norman Bates. So we are actually so immoral that we we just write Don Giovanni without the ending now. And I and yeah. I, I think there's something aimless, amiss, and terrible about that in its own way, without wanting to excuse the the trick that the Don Giovannis of the world have played on their. Uh, it's like, yeah, like, like we always say, hypocrisy is the, what is it? Tribute the vice pays to virtue. Tribute the, yeah. 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 Yeah, and I think I agree with what Jake said, and I 
I mean, I just go back to the conversation we had earlier, maybe the beginning of this podcast about being given permission to be immoral, like through reading true crime novels, you yeah. know, but also can condemn immorality and distance yourself from it, but also enjoy it. But mm-hmm. also like that's, I think of horror movies as being for that, especially. Yeah. Well, I just think these days people don't feel like they need permission and that's, that's, that's even worse. Like now it's now Hannibal Lecter has his own TV show and he's just the hero of the TV show. So did Norman Bates for a while. Yeah, Norman, yeah, exactly. That's a better example. The, you know, they made a Bates a show called Bates Motel. It's about Norman and Norma and how they come to the hotel. And they're they're it's like at least this movie does us the service of pretending like it's about Barry and Crane and pretending like it's about Sam and Lila, as lame as they are. I'm not really defending it. I'm just saying there is something to that. Um mm-hmm. that the, they are paying a tribute to virtue <laughs> there. And, and and like I said, some at some point in this nine hour podcast. I'm glad that Hitchcock was alive in a time and a place where he had to pay a lot of tributes to virtue because I think he would have just been a very good actual censor board that he had. to. Yeah. As much as he was gleefully defying them, at least there was something that he had to gleefully defy. And I think he made better movies for it and movies that have lasted longer and had more cultural impact because of that. Like if he was just allowed to every year, lots of violent slasher movies come and go, but psycho is probably going to be remembered for a long time. It's precisely because of the things he couldn't do, the p- things he couldn't show, the lines he couldn't cross that that we remember it at all. All right, Ben, how many shower heads out of 9,000 do you give to Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho? On a level of like quality and stuff, probably 8,500. On a level of like everyone should see this movie, <laughs> like 6,500 or something. All right, there we go. So we're uh, split the difference. Ben gave it about 75,000. Sure. Yeah, 7,500. 7,500 shower heads. Jake, same question. We did about 8,000. 8,000 across the board. Yeah, I mean, we're we're going to do an end of, at the end of the year, we're going to rate every movie that we've seen. And this is a movie that keeps jumping into my top 10 and falling out of my top 25. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's going to be in there. It's going to be in the top twenty-five. Whether or not it'll be in the top top ten or somewhere near the bottom, will I'm not even sure what all the factors will be. But it does jump around depending on how I feel or or what my my overruling metric is. If it's just craft, then it's going to be top ten. Right. Yeah. In terms of craftsmanship, this movie is right up there with anything we've ever watched mm-hmm. on the podcast. Yeah. In terms of a. Uh, coherent existential point of view i'd say this movie's pretty high i mean it is it does put you in a world and it is true to that world in a way that's really powerful whether that's a world that we need to spend much time in is another question and that's why none of us is going to give it a full nine thousand shower heads but but it is a compelling piece of cinema there are things that are very haunting about it the character of norman bates as played by anthony perkins is iconic for a reason and an indelible part of cinema and yeah and i think that there are scenes in this movie that like like the parlor scene that i think are just so superlative we didn't say about the parlor scene the a the way it's decorated with all those stupid birds of prey closing in on norman and b just if you want to see a simple example of how cutting and staging and camera placement matters watch how the camera closes in on norman as he goes crazier and crazier during that scene and at a certain point like it's looking at him full on, so you don't have a bunch of birds. Oh, and then about halfway through the scene, when the switch kind of flips in terms of Norman's psychosis, we suddenly 
are looking at him from the side for the whole rest of the scene. And there are all these massive birds of prey hmm. filling the frame, coming down on him. And it's just about as overtly symbolic, psychological, Freudian as you could as you could get. But but it's really beautiful. It's just so simple. And yet, you know, like the camera's not doing anything fancy. It's just like kind of medium shots of these two characters. But when Hitchcock switches to the medium shot that inc- that includes that particular detail of the room, really smart and interesting and fun to watch. This movie has a lot of things like that that are just fun to watch if you like cinema. So that's Psycho. I'll, I'll give it to one shower head. I, I, I think we shouldn't have even talked about it. You guys are gross for giving it more than one shower head. Didn't care for the picture. Don't care for this kind of thing at all. But uh, yeah, I'll tell you what I do care about deeply is our patron choice of uh, awesomeness, our patron choice award of awesomeness winner, Jay. What makes Jay so great, fellas? Mm, Jay would never open up a hotel in the middle of nowhere, kill its occupants while cross-dressing. I dare say in the list of things that Jay would do, right near the bottom, right near the bottom. Close to it. Close to the bottom. Motel, by the way, if you please. I think we've say, been said those things interchangeably. I know I have. Uh, I just say hotel. Guys, go to our patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies. Did you say motel? No, I don't. No, I was laughing because that was it for Jay. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, Jay's great. I'll tell you what he would do. He, or, uh, there's other things he would do. He wouldn't steal $40,000. Uh, he would give it back. If somebody tried to, if an old lady tried to stab him in the shower, he'd punch her in the nose and uh, emerge victorious from that scuffle, I dare say. If somebody tried to kill a lady he was with, he'd wrestle him to the ground and stop it from happening. And if he had to explain someone's psychosis, he'd do it in a very non-glib, serious, like caring manner. I think those are all true things. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what happened if a man dressed as a woman tried to stab him in the shower, but I do know if an old lady actually tried to stab him in the shower, I think he could. He could handle it. He could handle it. Yeah. Even if she had a knife and he didn't, he'd grab like a loofah and, Use it take to, the shower bar and yeah, take the shower bar. <laughs> uh, no, I think he just beats her down with the loofah. <laughs> Patreon.com. We have a discord set up. We forgot to mention this at the top of the show, but we've got a discord. We're really excited about it. You want to talk movies with us. You can talk about any of the movies that we are going to watch or ask questions or have things that you'd like us to address about those movies. If you want to suggest movies, if you want to talk about anything that you've seen in theaters or recently at home, if you want to talk about, things we said in an episode about a movie yeah uh, maybe you're like why, why are you guys being so hard on norman bates norman bates he's my homie i like this guy yeah you could go in to our psycho thread and uh, take issue with uh, the way that we've dealt with norman bates sure yeah whatever you whatever you want to do or, or uh, what's what's another movie we've done recently i guess we did the godfather we kind of saved our controversial picks until the end of this year didn't we gangsters are great who doesn't love italian american gangsters what are you, a racist? What are you, a racist? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can do that. So that's going to be fun. We have another Patreon thing that we're coming up with that I can't tell you yet that I'm really excited about that you'll want to oh, sign man, up for. Oh, man, it's going to be really cool. Yeah, it's going to be super great. Great. So uh, you want to be part of our Patreon. I, I tell you. It's I, the, I think it's the most exciting Patreon thing maybe that we've done, at least for me personally. Yeah, I'm excited about it too. I, I say the same thing. Yeah, agreed. Right up there with the booking Patreon level where you get a signed book, I'd, I'd say. And it's not... We're not sending you signed DVDs or anything like that, folks. No, but this is better than that. It's better than that. But uh, yeah, it's going to be great. I'm really excited, and you should be too. We all go a little mad sometimes. It's a thing that this movie's taught us. 
So uh, sorry, folks, my scream of conscious, I thought my scream of consciousness was going somewhere, my Halloween scream of consciousness, but it didn't. It just petered out. This, this episode is not just as long as the movie. This episode is way longer than the movie, okay? You got a lot of talk about Psycho, more than you deserved, for free. You don't have to go to the Patreon. You got it for free. So stop whining. I'm sorry my, my scream of consciousness ran out. It doesn't happen that often. It happens every once in a while. Sometimes I cut it out so you'll think I'm smart, but I'm leaving it in this time because there's no way I'm sorting through nine hours <laughs> of Psycho to, <laughs> to take it out. So anyway, folks... I, I wish you happy times. Oh, one other thing I wanted to say, I think this is a great California movie. It really plays to the myth that losers, loners, dreamers, and psychopaths somehow find themselves in the magical state of California. So there's a reason Bates Motel is not in, where is she? Arizona. It's in mm-hmm. California. You got to cross into California to find a Norman Bates. We all know that. We all know that. All right. Until next time. We all go a little mad sometimes. Yes, we do. Especially when this music has more time to finish. I guess you get a little bit more scream of consciousness. Consciousness. Norman Bates was conscious. Bye.